accessing agent files. Brian Sovereign. Early 21st Century Anarchist. Creator and host of the podcast Sovereign Check. By the year 2021, the show would be instrumental in the downfall of various conservative ideologies in the government, helping usher in an incredible time. Hey, want to take a walk on the wild side and experience the bleeding edge of technology? Then get ready because it doesn't get much more edgy than this. You're in for a wild ride. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with your host, the man in triple black, the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. He's got a huge brain. And now here's Brian. Oh, ho, 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 yes, it is that time again when the golden stallion is here with you for a little special, though not so little. I've actually got two. That's right. Two talks from Keenvention 2014. The first one, of course, will be the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy, uh, very apropos, hosting the Bitcoin panel, which I was on. And that was a lot of fun because actually, uh, I mean, great guests on there. Of course, you'll hear the introduction for who all of them are. Uh, but towards the end, during the Q&A, uh, boy, somebody had a question. They had to ask about Bitcoin 2.0. And uh, guess who got to take that question on? <laughs> so, and it was great because uh, people there were very gracious. The audience was very gracious. Uh, I actually got a bit of a standing O for my response uh, to that question. So that was that was pretty cool. Uh, but anyway, I hope you enjoy this. I will be back in the middle of it, but check out this Bitcoin panel first. It was really good, uh, especially had the guys from Lama Sioux there and had some really, really interesting things to talk about as far as what it's like being uh, a full on Bitcoin business with a total liberty mindset. I love the Harvey brothers. They're phenomenal. Uh, also, uh, Riaz, Riaz Khan is there and he is, oh man, <laughs> I mean, like this is this guy, you know, has really big plans. So you get to hear about that. And of course, Daryl W. Perry, uh, I, you know, just a class act. And of course, then there's me and the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy on board. And uh, it was just it was really a great a great time overall. We're, uh, Stephanie and I are actually still going to do a wrap up special where we talk about uh, our adventures and going to Syracuse, New York. And of course, uh, you know, our overall impressions of Keenvention. But bottom line is Keenvention, I thought, was a great success. It was really, uh, you know, a lot of great questions, a great audience there. Uh, boy, in fact, you know, if you head over to the website, Keenvention.info, uh, the, the keynote speech that James Cleveland gave was phenomenal. Um, I don't have the audio for that, uh, but I'll, I'll let, you know, Ian Freeman who put on Keenvention, you know, do all the releasing of that, but keep an eye out for that one. That was a great talk. Uh, and I mean, he, he got a few standing O's I think during his, uh, it was awesome. So anyway, here is the Bitcoin panel from Keenvention 2014. I'll come back in the middle of it and then we'll go into the tech panel and then I'll be back at the end of that. So enjoy folks. start. Keenvention tends to be relatively on time compared to, uh, to some conventions out there. And, uh, so the, these next couple of panels 
we have to sort of do a, a quicker version. I, one of the things that's nice about Keenvention is that we don't do these short panels typically. Uh, you know, typical panel length is like 45 minutes, and uh, or Keenvention we do 75 minute panels, and they tend to go over most of them, so they end up being you know 90 minutes long in a lot of cases. Uh, so these two, because you know we have to be out of here by a certain time to get the room cleaned up and have everybody make it over to Social Sundays tonight, these are our uh, basically hour-long panels, and they'll be back-to-back, -back, followed by Rich Paul, our keynote speaker for uh, today to wrap up Keenvention, and then, of course, Social Sundays is tonight at McHugh's. If you don't know where McHugh's is, I have maps at the registration table, so please come and see me. Uh, so this year we're gonna we're, we're reprising last year's panels. Uh, they were really great uh, by two very talented uh, panel hosts. And uh, let's bring up Stephanie Murphy from Let's Talk Bitcoin and Free Talk Live. And she was the host of this very same panel last year. Did an awesome job. And she's like Ms. Bitcoin, so why not uh, have her back to do it all over again? Except this time with a, a different panel of distinguished. And a very large panel of distinguished guests, which I'm sure you will introduce. Uh, welcome back to King Pension Step. Thank you so much, Ian. It's great to be back. I'm really excited that we're doing this panel again. We've uh, rotated the guests, so uh, hopefully we'll get the maximum bang for your Bitcoin here. Uh, <laughs> I'm Stephanie Murphy. I am the host of a podcast called Let's Talk Bitcoin. It comes out twice a week, and it's all about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and beyond. And you can find it at letstalkbitcoin.com. And I've got with me five gentlemen. You know, I, when I was trying to plan out this panel, I didn't think this many people would say yes. I kind of asked, <laughs> I kind of asked a bunch of people thinking, like, oh, they're going to turn me down. They turned me down last year. I'm going to get rejected. It's going to hurt. Uh, so I'll just put out my feelers and ask as many people <laughs> as I can. And uh, lo and behold, uh, these five fine gentlemen did say yes. So thank you guys for, for being on the panel. I'm actually really excited to have all of you here because I think all of you have something really cool to say about Bitcoin and uh, specifically how it ties in with New Hampshire and, and freedom. So uh, we've got Daryl W. Perry. He is the uh, proprietor of FPP.cc, the uh, free press publications. He, uh, he does all kinds of stuff, publishes a newspaper, is a book publisher, independent book publisher, uh, accepts Bitcoin at his business. So that makes him a Bitcoin entrepreneur as well. Daryl, did I get all that right? Yes, you did. Okay, thank you. And uh, Brian Sovereign. Brian is the host of the technology podcast Sovereign Tech. He uh, was here in New Hampshire from the beginnings of the Bitcoin revolution, <laughs> Bitcoin movement, and he's very knowledgeable about technology, security, has some interesting criticisms of Bitcoin 2.0 uh, technologies, which we'll get into perhaps here on the panel, uh, that I think he's becoming well known for. Brian, thank you for being here. Did I get everything right, too? <laughs> Yeah, that works, uh, though you didn't call me the Golden Stallion. I'm sorry, okay. <laughs> we'll have to talk about that later. Yeah, is that because of the uh, FISA court letter? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm safe. I've not been contacted by the government yet. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, we've also got Riaz Kahan. He is a the Agoras Taxi here in New Hampshire. I think you've already been outed as the Agoras Taxi uh, that works for Bitcoin, uh, giving people rides. Better than Uber, perhaps treats their employees a little bit better, doesn't support the police or the military like Uber does. And, uh, and you also have um, also had your part in organizing the Bitcoin meetups in Manchester, New Hampshire. So did I get all that right for you, Riaz? Yep, it's all correct. Awesome, thank you. 
Thank you for your service, by the way. I have to say. <laughs> 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 Happy customer, right? <laughs> <laughs> we already got a customer testimonial. So next we've got Josh Harvey. He is uh, one of the co-founders of Lamasu, which is a company that makes a Bitcoin machine. It's not exactly an ATM because it doesn't go both ways or uh, you can't really take cash out of it, but you could feed in your worthless fiats and get valuable Bitcoins <laughs> out the other side, right, onto your phone. And uh, created that with um, his brother, um, uh, Zach and Matt Whitlock, I think, was also the co-founder of Lamasu. He's since left, but you guys started that company and since then have gone global. And now they are our Lamasu ATMs, their vending machines, Lamasu machines all over the world. Um, you also took your machine to Porkfest, the Porcupine Freedom Festival, and somehow, in the middle of the woods with no internet, served the Porkfest community with Bitcoins 24-7 with this machine. And it was very handy there. I used it too. So Josh and Zach, welcome to uh, welcome to the panel. Thank you for being here. Thanks a lot, Stephanie. Yes, and uh, Zach, I, did, I guess I didn't really introduce you uh, individually, but of course you're an individual. You deserve your own introduction. <laughs> That's all right. It's all right. I'm sure you guys get that a lot. Like yeah. people kind of consider you like one entity. I I will try to avoid doing that. I, you are both individual people and collectivists. <laughs> <laughs> you each have something cool to say. So. Uh, so thank you. That's uh, that's our introduction here for the panelists. And you know, just a few words before we start. Bitcoin in New Hampshire has been just so exciting. To I've been here from the beginning, and I just remember ever since Gavin Andreessen um, took Ian and Mark from Free Talk Live out to lunch back in 2011, was it some sometime around there, uh, many years ago, and told them about this new nerdy project that he was working on. Uh, it's called Bitcoin, and it's a way to have these tokens that you could transfer around online and send money, value, anywhere in the world. Um, and the idea really caught on with them, and they started to talk about it on Free Talk Live. Bitcoin just took hold in this community of people who came to New Hampshire because they're interested in freedom. And it was so cool. It was really a natural fit with libertarians because, you know, I think all of us maybe have experienced a little bit of the financial oppression, you know, the war on cash that's happening. Uh, no, the government doesn't want you to be able to do transactions with financial privacy. They want to know every little bit that you spend and where you spend it and who you got it from so they can tax and track and control you. And uh, I think a lot of the people who moved to New Hampshire to get more freedom in their lives don't want to be, be subject to that kind of control. So Bitcoin was really uh, a natural fit. It's also not not war dollars. You know, it's not a currency that's used to fund uh, threat, coercion, and theft around the world, uh, destruction of people's property, um, and that is appealing to libertarians too. So, with that in introduction in mind, I would like everybody to just kind of talk a little bit about their business or project and how Bitcoin fits in with that. Like, tell me some stories and anecdotes about how you use Bitcoin in your work or how you first find, found out about it. I just want to hear like, a, like an interesting story from each person. Let's start with Daryl. So I think it was about uh, 2009 when I first heard about Bitcoin. That's pretty early. It was like, early. Did you know Satoshi? Uh, no, no, I, I did not. But the weird thing is, I was involved in the Ron Paul presidential campaign in 08. I was one of the precinct coordinators and you know some other stuff. So I, I was a you know hard money guy, 
And at the CPAC in 2009, I was having a discussion with somebody and this guy was saying, well, yeah, I agree that, you know, like we need to get rid of the Fed, but we can replace it with having the treasury just issue like, you know, digits and then, you know, like a completely digital currency that the Fed controls and they can just inflate and they don't have to worry about firing up a printer and this and that. And I was like, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> and it was several months later when I first heard about this cryptocurrency thing called Bitcoin. And I was like, ah, this is that thing where they can just like add money and hyperinflation in a snap of a finger. No, that was Fedcoin. And he was suggesting Fedcoin. Right, but it, it took me a, about a year and a half to realize that, you know, Bitcoin isn't this horrible thing that I thought it was, you know, it's decentralized. And I kept asking people, you know, like, how, what keeps it from just being inflated, you know, on somebody's web? And they're like, because of the coding. And I was like, okay, but you're saying it's open source. That means people can change the coding. And they're like, but the coding. And... I'm like, something doesn't register here. And then ultimately somebody was like, okay, so parts of the coding can be changed, but the core of the coding can't be. And I was like, okay. And by that time, Bitcoin was at like, you know, $5. And somebody said, I want to send you some Bitcoin. And I was like, don't really trust it, but okay. And so they sent me eight of them and then I sold them immediately. And then a few oh. months later, the same thing happened where somebody sent me like, you know, five Bitcoin that was worth $40 and I sold them immediately. And I wish I would have kept those first 13 Bitcoin that I received in those two transactions. Uh, so that, that was sort of my introduction. And I really started buying Bitcoin at the 2013 Liberty Forum. Uh, thanks in part to a little machine prototype that the Ooh. two guys down at the end had. Because originally, the first time that Bitcoin hit $30 and then it almost immediately went back to 10, I was like, okay, well, maybe if it starts going up a little bit, I don't know, maybe. And then it started going up and I was like, I'll buy when it hits 10 and then it hit 30. And I was like, I'll buy when it hits 10 and uh, screw it, I'll just go ahead and buy. And then it's not seen $10 again since. You know, I remember saying the same thing myself. I was at the, uh, at the 2013 Liberty Forum. I remember walking out of a movie theater and seeing, this, seeing the Silver Circle premiere of that movie, and Roger Ver was there, and he excitedly like walked over to me and he goes, Bitcoin's at an all-time high, it's $33. And thinking about it now, back at $33, today it's 300 something dollars, it's 10 times that, and we've seen highs of uh, 1,200, so. Um, that was really like a little cool piece of history there. So you were skeptical at first, but eventually yes. you uh, you got on board. Brian, how about you? How did you first find out about Bitcoin, and what are your your Bitcoin regret stories? If you have any about selling it early or whatever, <laughs> I think you have one of those stories. Oh boy, yeah, I, I probably have some regrets. Uh, as to the first time that I wasn't skeptical about it at all, but there's a kind of a funny reason why uh, when I first heard about it, and I think I first heard about it on Free Talk Live, but I may have heard rumors of it a little bit before, so like it wasn't so odd when it, when it just you know, came to my ears uh, through a podcast, uh, because I, I've been involved in the cypherpunk community for, for quite some time, so you, know, you hear things on forums and all this about these kind of technologies. Um, but at the time, in 2011, when I had heard it, uh, I was still calling myself, not to say that I felt that way inside, but I was still calling myself a Christian, and this was on my, kind of my path to some serious liberty. And, uh, 
as soon as I heard about this, and I went and I talked to my family and some other people about it, uh, I said, it's like, well, you know, there's this, this currency, this could really be like this one world currency, and then suddenly everybody, <gasps> a one world currency. So the book of Revelation, it. you know, and so as soon as I heard, I, you know, I mean, because that's, that's what the book of Revelation says, that there would be a one world economy, not a, not a one world government. It never says that, but it says there'd be an economy. And so as soon as I heard that, this was like a problem for Christians. I'm like, this guy, great, I need this. I need this right now. But, uh, but no offense to any Christians in the audience. Um, but that, that was why I was so sure. I was like, wow, this is a great technology because I was feeling very rebellious at the time. Uh, but all the same, uh, it was very exciting when I read about it. Uh, there was a great book by Peter Ludlow uh, called uh, Cyber States and Pirate Utopias that came out in 2001, which described quite a bit uh, of what Bitcoin would eventually be. In fact, I half wonder at times if Peter Ludlow himself isn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, but uh, it's a, a fantastic book, really, you know, to see it all kind of come and start coming into fruition was really exciting uh, for me. And uh, I actually, boy, I, I started mining it. I was working at a tech company at the time that did uh, point of sale systems. And with, we had to burn in what they called burning in the registers, which was making sure, giving them an overnight test, you know, running the RAM hard and the CPU hard and whatever. And so instead of actually running the normal test that, I, that we were supposed to do on these uh, registers, I lined up you know, 10, 15 of these registers and just plug in a bunch of USB drives and mining software on them. And uh, you know, got, got quite a few Bitcoin out of that, but unfortunately I sold out of those, God, 2012. I mean, <laughs> really, you really. sold them at $4, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, what a mistake uh, that, that was, but uh, you know, that, that's how it goes. Uh, but now, I mean, I'm an ad exec for Free Talk Live. Uh, which is very exciting, and getting to work with the few Bitcoin companies, present company accepted, of course, you know that are that are willing uh, to actually uh, realize how important it is to get your get the Bitcoin message out there, even when it costs some money, uh, has been a real pleasure, you know, to work with them, and uh, they've generally been very up and up people. So, Brian, you went from thinking it was the mark of the beast to uh... well, that's what excited me about it. <laughs> <laughs> you liked, you wanted the mark of the beast, all right. <laughs> So Riaz, how did you how did you find out about what's your story with the with the Agoras Cap Company? How did you start doing that for Bitcoin? I mean, uh, the, the market for rides in New Hampshire, there's got to be one there, but it's not big enough for Uber or Lyft really to come in. So how did you get into this? Um, okay, uh, I guess it all started in 2012. I was a big Ron Paul supporter for years. Um, I was always uh, pretty passionate about getting the Fed and auditing the Fed and all those different things. And, uh, I remember in December of 2012, I was listening to Free Talk Live, so it's, uh, it's another common uh, place where people find out about Bitcoin, it was definitely the case for me. Um, heard Mark Edge talking about it incessantly for weeks, if not months, and finally got on the bandwagon around Liberty Forum of 2013, um, like maybe 15 or $20 per Bitcoin. Um, and then I moved here to the Free State Project in uh, September of last year. And um, in about around December, I just started giving rides to people. I just realized there's a lot of the community in Manchester that don't have vehicles. Uh, and I think Amanda Billyrock was my first customer, and she offered to pay me some Bitcoin. And I didn't really think anything of it. I have a Prius. It only cost me, I don't know, 50 cents to do a ride in gas. Uh, so she started paying me in Bitcoin, 5 to $10. And after, the, after a couple of days, the uh, word spread around that I was doing rides for Bitcoin. I, did, I had nothing to do with it. 
it just kind of spread around. And the next thing I know, my phone started blowing up every day. And now I've given rights to about 120 different forks. Clearly a dangerous terrorist ever <laughs> since saw one. <laughs> cool, all right. So, and we'll talk about, I guess, the Bitcoin meetups. But first, I want to hear from Josh and then Zach about you know, the, the beginnings of Lamasu and like how long were you into Bitcoin before you decided, mm, I think we can uh, start a company here and do a service? Yeah, actually the uh, Bitcoin meetups were a big part of uh, Lamasu. Um, when I found out about Bitcoin, it, it's a bit of a haze. Uh, it was probably around 2010. I just remember um, somehow finding the Bitcoin project page. And it was a very small page at that point on the internet. Um, my first reaction was, uh, you know, this is too weird. I wasn't that excited about it. And then uh, I remember uh, somebody on Facebook, um, a few months later, which is one of my Facebook friends, um, libertarian guy, and I was in Israel at that point. Um, he, he just posted on his wall, wow, Bitcoin's worth 25 cents. And I couldn't believe it because I didn't even, it didn't have a market value really when I first looked into it. And that's when I started taking it seriously. Um, and you know what happens when you first learn about Bitcoin or, and get excited about it, you just don't eat or sleep for the next two weeks. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that was pretty much me reading the white paper, um, trying to figure out what was going on here. And um, then it got very exciting. The price started going crazy. Um, At the time when you first found out about it, were there, were there any exchanges? Was Matt Vox up yet? Um, let's see, it was, it was worth about 25 cents. I think that was pre-Mount Gox at that point were wow. very, very beginnings. Um, I couldn't get it. My first Bitcoin, I, I was trying to figure out who would sell me some Bitcoins and there was the Web of Trust. Um, that was the best way to get it at that point, but I wasn't on the Web of Trust. So I, I somehow convinced this uh, guy in New Zealand to uh, to take my you know, um, 12 bucks of PayPal money and, uh, <laughs> and he sent me some Bitcoins. Um, but fast forward to um, move to New Hampshire in the uh, beginning of 2012, at the end of 2011. And um, it was really the 2012 Pork Fest. Um, it was the first Pork Fest that I went to, and there was a bunch of Bitcoin activity going on there. And um, Eric Horries was there, a lot of the uh, BitInstant guys were there. and. That's when we kind of had this idea to start a Bitcoin meetup in New Hampshire. Right after Porkfest, we started the Bitcoin meetup. It's been going on every week since then. Um, I think it's maybe the longest running Bitcoin meetup yeah. in the country, or, or maybe in the world. In the world. Probably yes. Yeah. Um, there was there wasn't there wasn't a lot going on um, back in those days. And one of the things we started talking about at those meetups is, uh, hey, what can we do? What does Bitcoin need? We decided uh, it had to be easier to for the average person to get themselves some Bitcoin, and that's when we started fooling around with the uh, the Bitcoin ATM idea. And at the same time, we were traveling around to all these uh, different libertarian conferences, like Students for Liberty, all around the area. We went to New York, Boston, Philadelphia. Um, we put on some Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin conference in Philadelphia. So we did uh, a bunch of stuff like that. Uh, a few of us were going around, and it was actually at the Students for Liberty uh, conference. It was their global conference in Washington, D.C., where we first showed off our uh, little wooden pro prototype Bitcoin machine. And this is like January 2013? This was February 
2013. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And the week after that was uh, was Liberty Forum, and that's when it really blew up. CNET was there. They did a, an article on us, and um, the rest is uh, pretty much history from there. So it's re it really ties into to Pork Fest, Liberty Forum, uh, the New Hampshire Bitcoin community. Um, in, in a very very real sense, that's where the Bitcoin, uh, the idea of the Bitcoin ATM, the Bitcoin machine, really got to start. So a real startup uh, outside of the comfort of Silicon Valley, you guys were really intimately tied with um, the Free State Project and Liberty. That's cool. So Zach, maybe you could tell the story of getting ready for that 2013 Liberty Forum. Like I know you guys had some crazy times. You were you were kind of hauling this machine around. It was a little bit uh, rough around the edges. It was not, nuts and bolts were sticking out in different places. You guys have been up all night trying to get it ready. <laughs> yeah. This was when the Bitcoin price was on the move from eh, hovering around $13, $10 up to about 30 and it's right. never seen the light of $10 again. <laughs> so, so tell me what that was like. Well, it was crazy. I mean, for one, it, it uh... I think the hardest part was getting it ready for the, the conference right before Liberty Forum, which is this, the international, maybe the first international students for Liberty uh, convention in, in Washington, D.C., uh, of course. Um, and for us, I mean, this wasn't kind of like, okay, guys, how do we start this business? It was just a project. Like, hey, there's this you know, machine we want to try to get together and show off because it's really awesome. Look, you put money in it and you get Bitcoin. I mean, pay the money. Um, and but part of it is that you know we didn't really have um, specific roles or, or, or really a timeline for this. It was more of like, oh no, this is happening like two days. We, <laughs> do. Um, we don't have anything, and so we the last two three days we were working like crazy. I mean, um, I think Matt was soldering like some things to the, the PC board, PCB board like about an hour and a half before the flight. And we had to just like grab him. And I remember like we, we'd locked it. We were actually were doing this all in um, in the old, we had a guitar store in, in Madge for about eight months. And so we had already decided to close that down. And But we were using that store for, for putting all the pieces together because we couldn't really do it in the apartment. Um, Remember, you guys were selling guitar stuff for Bitcoin, yeah, right? Really right. early we were on. One of BitPay's first customers, I think. Wow, the, uh, fascinating. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, so I, I remember kind of like finally getting everything. It, you know, we weren't first of all, it didn't work yet. Um, and then the graphics, we you know, we were just trying to like, we had like a sticker that we worked on, and uh, and we were just kind of like trying to get that. I don't even know if we we put it on. We just didn't have any time in the flight. You know, we had to leave for the flight. And I remember picking up all the pieces and going out and knowing that if we forgot any of the pieces, it just wouldn't work because, you know, it's just a, a part you had to order from eBay. And so I remember we closed the door and then I'm like, let me just check one more time. And I went in and there was, you know, like one of the small adapters or something. And I found it. So, you know, it's, it's those little things. And then we uh, rushed to the flight, made the flight. Um, you know, and in, in a way, we're like, phew, we made it. And then you remember that nothing works yet. Um, and, that, and, and so we got to the, uh, the hotel room in Washington, D.C., maybe got something to eat. And what, then how did you get it through the TSA? Oh. Um, actually, we, we had a, um, we checked it. Okay. In pieces, I think. Right, in pieces, <laughs> right. So okay. one guy took the screen, another guy took the, uh, the bill acceptor, and then there's just a like wooden box. You know, I think you're allowed to bring a wooden box. I mean, it was pretty small. Um, but it was definitely in pieces, and then um, basically we're up, uh, 
I guess, all night trying to get the, uh, the last case of uh, software. Um, and so the first night we didn't have it ready, and then like the first day, I went downstairs to kind of try to explain to people and know and, and hype things up a bit, which of course created more pressure for, for Josh and Matt <laughs> to work on the programming. And then at like 11 a.m., it's like I got like a Eureka message. Um, and, and then we had to all bring it down and like, we all had to hold a little part because if any of the wires would come out, of course, it wouldn't work. Um, and then we got it down. We actually got it working. And I, I mean, we haven't even, at this point, we hadn't even used it. Um, then how did you know it worked? We didn't. Um, <laughs> we knew that the software was Lights were blinking. <laughs> right. And uh, then we did one test run, and we were like, wow, this is easy. And then within 10 minutes, it was already like all over Twitter and everything. And uh, so people were getting really excited about that. So, um, so these people at the Students for Liberty conference knew what Bitcoin was and they wanted to yeah, buy it? Yeah, I mean the amazing thing is some of those guys at that part were already like, some of these 18 to 21 year old guys were already talking about how they're Bitcoin millionaires. <laughs> and that was... That was when it was like 10 bucks? That was when it was going up to 30 and they're like, oh my god, I saw this money. They're on an island somewhere in the <laughs> right. so. Yeah, so there are <laughs> a lot of rich libertarians out there. That's, that's the good news. Um, and then a week later, it was, it was Liberty Forum, so we, you know, it was a little bit more relaxed. We already we got it working once. Wow. Um, and then, uh, you know, right after that, we said, okay, you know, people are getting excited about this little orange box, and then that's when we started working on a kind of like a real model, a production model. Wow. And that's another crazy story. Very <laughs> cool. Well, I, I really appreciate hearing about that. It's a, quite a nail biter, you know, getting that ready, but uh, you guys made history, so kudos to you. Uh, I want to ask you, Brian, specifically, uh, I know you talked before about uh, how New Hampshire has really the potential to be like, the, the, not Silicon Valley, but like maybe Milliard Valley or something like that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe uh, Josh, you came up with that phrase, I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> there really does seem to be a hub of early Bitcoin adopters and Bitcoin activity and Bitcoin businesses in New Hampshire. And I just want to know, like, do you think New Hampshire could be the next Silicon Valley, and what would need to happen for that to occur? Well, th there's been a lot of write-ups uh, recently, uh, particularly coming from some luminaries like Tim Draper and others, that pretty much Silicon Valley itself only has a good two years left, that it's in a pretty serious bubble, and that actually anywhere where Bitcoin is really taking hold could be the next Silicon Valley. Um, and Bitcoin's abilities, or at least blockchain technology's abilities, seems pretty limitless. Uh, you know, your imagination is the, you know, is the ceiling. And with that, I mean, if you could create a, an area like New Hampshire, you know, and it could be anywhere in New Hampshire, it could be Keene, you take your pick, uh, where those businesses could thrive, uh, you know, you, you really, you have a, a pretty golden opportunity uh, to be the center of the world, much like Silicon Valley is. Because, and I agree with the assessment that Silicon Valley really is going to fall apart pretty fast because there's no innovation coming out of there whatsoever. To where I think there's plenty of uh, you know really bright guys right here in New Hampshire that could definitely take advantage uh, of uh, you know of this lack of, of innovation. Yeah, we got a real uh, talent hub here that I'm I'm uh, you know I don't want to say I'm proud to be from New Hampshire or like I'm proud of it because I had nothing to do with it, but it's cool to live in a place where there's so many uh, Bitcoin experts, I guess. And, and with Bitcoin, you don't have to ask for permission; just do your business. Yeah. You know, I mean, and you have a huge community here that will back you up when you take the risk, and that's that's really the beauty of New Hampshire is the community that you have. 
to uh, you know to let you do what you have to do again without asking permission to start your business and make it happen. Yeah, so speaking of which, uh, that's a perfect segue into what I wanted to ask you, Riaz. Um, have you had any trouble from the authorities uh, with your taxi business? I mean, you really couldn't get a job with Uber or Lyft, even if you wanted to, because they don't serve this area. They don't consider it important enough right now. Um, you are basically just starting your own independent business. Have you had any trouble from the, from the police or any issues that you want to talk about? Um, one of the most unique things about my business is, uh, and this is the mo one of the most beautiful things about it, is that uh, my clientele is literally only porks. So it's exclusively just people I'm, I'm actually friends with, pretty much, for the most part. Um, living in Manchester, where there's so many social activities every day, uh, it's pretty easy to meet 300 porcupines within a few months uh, that, that, I, that I lived here at that point. And for and people who may be listening on the internet, a porcupine is like a nickname for a, priest, a person who moved to New Hampshire to get more liberty. Collectivist. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, my clientele are all people I know, so it, uh, it, it's pretty exclusive. Uh, it's not marketed uh, toward the greater, the greater public or the, the populace of the city. Um, so you don't need to expand out with your business model. You've got enough business just from basically giving friends rides? Exactly, yeah. And there, there was, there's no marketing needed. It was all word of mouth that just spread organically through Facebook and uh, in-person social activities that happen frequently in Manchester. You got some news coverage, though, didn't you? You got, like, local news coverage. And I don't know, I'm always seeing, like, every time I go to an airport outside of New Hampshire uh, and I request an Uber ride or something like that, They'll say stuff like, well, meet me on the third level, because the first level, that's their territory, the taxis, and the, the cops wait, wait there for us, and they don't like it. So, uh, I mean, you have that media exposure. How did that go? Yeah, actually, uh, at Liberty Forum uh, of this year, uh, I, I, was, I was doing a lot of rides for, directly for the Free State Project for their events, uh, one of which is Liberty Forum, which uh, brings uh, several hundred people to, well, this year it'll be Manchester, New Hampshire, in a convention format similar to this one, uh, similar to Keenvention, but on a larger scale. And I was doing a lot of rides. I was a very busy period for the week, and I was doing rides for a lot of the guest speakers, um, one of which was Kashmir Hill, who's a, re a reporter or a writer for uh, Forbes.com, and she went ahead and included a couple paragraphs about me in an article about the Free State Project. And, and she has written about living on Bitcoin. She's written a lot about Bitcoin in Forbes, so you're probably familiar with her stuff if you're listening to this. Absolutely. Um, yeah, thankfully, for some reason, I haven't had any trouble with the authorities, even though my Facebook is public. I have a Facebook-like page for AgriCab. Um, Uber has entered the market recently in, in New Hampshire just in the last week. They're, they're expanding oh. on a very slow, kind of. It, they're just kind of picking up at this point in the... Uh, very early stages, and they said that there's actually no laws that they're breaking with their operations here. So I'm not sure. That kind of gives me the green light to expand to the greater population now and start marketing outside of the community. So here's a question. Do you want to join Uber, or <laughs> would you rather keep working for yourself? And I mean, Uber doesn't accept Bitcoin, right? So Exactly. There's a, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of ways to compete with Uber and still have an edge on them, considering they don't accept cash in any aspect. They don't accept Bitcoin. Uh, they report all the income to the IRS and things like that. Our audience does not like this. <laughs> <laughs>
So some of my aspirations uh, for the future include maybe competing directly with Uber and creating an app and literally just going head to head with them right now. Wow, that's cool. All right. Well, we wish you good luck providing voluntary services to people in a peaceful manner. Love it. Uh, Daryl, how do you see Bitcoin uh, helping with independent publishers? Because I know there's a lot of there's a lot of issues that maybe motivated you to get into independent publishing in the first place. Right. So uh, with the you know quote unquote mainstream publishers or you know. Actually, I, I would say probably a good many of the uh, libertarian publishing companies there, there actually are like you know, one or two others that exist. They still abide by copyright laws and they want you to sign over the copyright to them. And I don't really believe in the current copyright laws as they exist. I, I think they're totally flawed. And I don't want to have to, you know, like, sign over my rights to somebody else, especially when I want to put the stuff out under a, uh, a Creative Commons license or a copyright license. So, you know, I don't want to submit my stuff to Penguin Press or Random House or whoever, and then, you know, one, probably get a rejection letter, and two, them say, okay, well, we want the copyright. And I'm like, uh, no, it's for you. So it, it was mainly the copyright issue that caused me to you know, look into how, how to do this independent publishing thing. And there's another issue, and you know, right now there's not really a way to get around this if you want you know, like Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and Books A Million to carry your stuff, and that is the international standard book number called an ISBN that every book published that is carried on Amazon, unless it's something that was you know, printed before the creation thereof, uh, you know, before the creation of the ISBN, not before the creation of Amazon. Uh, <laughs> Amazon will not carry a book that does not have an ISBN, unless you somehow jump through all of their hoops and hurdles to become your own distributor, and you know, that's a pain in the ass to even begin the process. So I, I found a company that is actually a subsidiary of Amazon. So I've got this weird love-hate relationship with Amazon. Uh, and the cost of a single ISBN from Bowker, which is the only company in the United States that you can buy an ISBN number from, cost $125. If you want to buy more than that, you can buy 10 of them for $250. You can buy 100 of them for $600, 1,000 for $1,000, and then it goes down from there. So it's one of these things where it's, you know, like you save money if you buy in bulk, but it doesn't cost them any extra money because you know, they just have some weird random computer thing that generates the number. So it doesn't cost them extra money to like just send you one, but they want to you know, charge you an exorbitant fee. And I would love to see some sort of blockchain technology be able to be used to replace the ISBN. And I'm sure to completely do away with that, there's all kinds of international treaties that would have to be done away with to you know, get wide adopted or widespread acceptance. But I, I think that it's something that it has potential and I don't know how to do it. So if there's anybody that knows how to like, you know, create a blockchain sort of thing. I'll throw my idea out there. Uh, 
I, I want to sort of take from the best of various cryptos, NXT being one of them, to where they do a proof of stake instead of a proof of work. Meaning that as long as you are running the client and you have some of their coins, then you wind up getting some of the uh, forging fees, which is what they call it instead of a miner's fee. So what I would love to see is something to where people can run this client and it keeps the, you know, whatever we're gonna call the replacement to the ISBN, it keeps that log running. And people just, you know, like create an address and then attach a book name to it. And then I don't want there to be any fees involved at all. So if somebody can figure out how to do that, then run with it. I, I'm claiming no ownership of the idea. Wow, yeah, I really like that idea. Maybe it could be sort of like a decentralized Kindle type thing where you're opening a reader and the reader is actually forging with a proof of stake coin that somehow has a, a blockchainized record of the ISBN numbers or yeah. the equivalent. I love it. Cool. Well, if anyone wants to get in touch with Daryl about that, his website, fpp.cc, you can contact him there. And uh, cool, I hope that happens. I would like to decentralize that process for sure. Uh, so Josh and Zach, I wonder if you could maybe speak a little bit about some of the regulatory issues or hurdles that you've overcome. You've kind of taken a, a different route than perhaps the flagrant lawbreakers on this panel, uh, <laughs> the, the other panelists. You've kind of sort of gone, you know, tried to comply within reason and not completely destroy your business model, but you know, get it out there in a way that most people can access. So what have been your most difficult challenges in that realm? Because I'm sure there are some. Um, so first of all, we're, we're just a uh, manufacturer of these machines. We don't actually operate any of them. Um, so the, these uh, money transmitting laws um, don't apply directly to our business, but they did you adjust your business plan based on? Um, yes, yeah, so we, we were we were careful about that, and uh, that that probably informed um, a lot of our decisions, um, the way we decided to go about the business. Um, but at the same time, we want our operators in the United States and around the world to um, be able to deploy these machines without uh, without worrying about things, and the especially in the United States the. Uh, the money transmitting laws are are incredibly draconian. The the uh, the penalties for even uh, small um, problems with your you know money transmitting licensing and compliance um, could end up costing you uh, decades in jail, or at least that's what the prosecutors are seeking. Um, there have been a number of cases uh, in the Bitcoin community of prosecutors going after friends of ours um, and, and threatening people with 20, 30 years in jail. Wow. Um, so it's something that people have to be very careful about, especially if you know they're deploying a, a public machine in a retail location. It's not something they can really um, hide or, or keep secret. Um, so you know, um, one of the things we've been doing is, is looking at the, the FinCEN guidance, and and the problem with that is it keeps on shifting. It seems like they're they're changing their minds of whether they want to um, take a step back from regulating everything Bitcoin or whether they want to kind of broaden it so that they're regulating more and more. Um, and in the last few days, FinCEN has put out um, some new guidance which 
looks like they're trying to, to regulate more. Like they're trying to go beyond um, possibly what the original laws say and broaden those laws so that they apply to more people. Specifically, um, that could include people who operate a uh, Bitcoin machine. Um, so like if someone owns a restaurant and has a Lama Su machine in their restaurant, then they could potentially be labeled as a money transmitter? It's not really. It's not really um, a question of who owns the space, but of who is operating the machine. So it could be somebody coming in, you know, making an agreement with the restaurant owner to place a machine there. The restaurant owner wouldn't need to be licensed, but the, the person operating the machine um, would have to be if that's considered a business that's a money transmitting business. So Stephanie, I, I don't know who you're calling lawbreakers. I have an intergalactic bit license that <laughs> Uh, authorizes the bearer if, of this card, uh, or rather recognizes that the bearer of this card has a natural and inalienable right to financial freedom and privacy. This includes, but is not limited to, possession, transfer, transmission, uttering, passing, wandering, mining, hoarding, sending, receiving, and earning of Bitcoin. So I do have a license. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> no, I did not. Can, can people buy them? <laughs> BitcoinNotBombed.com. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, so, I mean, Zach, maybe you could speak to this. Uh, I've just, I've noticed some of your competitors, like the competitors to Lamasu, because you guys were the first uh, in your industry, but there have been lots of others competing, um, including some kind of scary ones that uh, literally will take your handprint, will take a picture of That's you. That's RoboCoin. Um, yeah, there's others too. I mean, uh, they have these complicated instructions on how to create an account like hanging on the machine uh, that include, you know, we, we need everything from a DNA sample to, you know, to your picture, to your government issued ID and your passport. And I mean, it's, it's getting to a level that's really uh, crazy. And you guys have managed to, to pretty much avoid going there for the time being, right? Is, is that because you're only going from cash into Bitcoin and not the other way, uh, and, and you're only making the hardware, as you said, as uh, Josh said, and not actually operating it? Um, I, I don't think it's because, um, A, it's because it's one way. Uh, or has there been like an ideological reason for, for not going there? That's what I'm really getting at. <laughs> well, there's there's always an ideological reason for not wanting to go there, but then there's also the practical reason of how, to, of how do you get enough machines out there. And if you can't launch a machine in a certain area without some kind of compliance solution or people will go to jail, then uh, the operator of that machine is going to want to have some kind of compliance solution so he can operate the machine without uh, going to, the, to jail as, to the best of his ability. Um, for one, I don't think that all of the, I don't think that the compliance solution that some of our competitors are offering are necessary, and I do think that they're very intrusive. So even from a user, you know, even if I uh, if I believed in regulation, it, it's intrusive and it's a bad user experience. And uh, you know, there's from any of the regulation that, that I've seen or read, there was no mention of a of a palm scanner or anything that would be recognized uh, from a government level. So I, I don't even think it's something that's necessary. I think you know you have to look and see what what is the the what is necessary for the government to say, um, okay, this machine. As far as I'm concerned, you are now compliant. You're doing what you have to. Um, and um, so for that, you know, we, we, we just talk to our operators and we say, well, you know, what jurisdiction are you in? What do you need? And especially at an earlier stage, the U.S. market was really small for us. 
part of the reason was regulation. They didn't even want to try to, you know, people were, were, were terrified of even touching it. Um, and so for, um, you know, some of the places we have in Europe, under 15,000 euros, you don't have to do anything. So that's basically, you know, it's not a priority for us right now. We don't have to start figuring out how to make our user experience more difficult and complicated if there's not demand from our operators. So the first stage, you know, it makes, obviously makes using our machine a lot easier if you don't um, have extra steps. It's just three steps. You just go to the machine, you press start, scan your QR code, put in cash, press send, and go home. Um, and then compared to all these other processes where, you know, it takes, uh, uh, you know, 15 minutes to, to be verified on the system, and then uh, by the time it gets sent to you from, from Bitstamp and, you know, the transactions clear, etc., there are people that, you know, 24 hours later, and they still haven't received their Bitcoins. So I think there, there are two aspects to it. One of it is just pure um, user experience. The other part of what is required from us. What are the priorities of our operators? What do they need? And as we started getting more US and uh, Canadian operators that say, listen, we're starting to get pressure and we can really only launch this if we have a compliance solution, that's when we started looking into it. And that's when we started going to um, uh, a third-party service that provides a compliance service, and we just integrate it into our system in a really simple way. Um, that somebody just goes in the machine, it's one extra step, they scan in their driver's license, it makes sure they're not on any government list, and then it's, okay, you can do it. It's what not as intrusive. What list is check against? What's that? What list is it checking against? Oh, all, I mean, all we're of your all favorite list. lists. <laughs> of course we're all on some list, but yeah. I mean... <laughs> Probably the terror watch list, if I had to guess. There, there are a few lists that, that probably none of us in the room are actually on. So I don't, th I don't think, you know, it's probably pretty rare that, uh, unless, you know, uh, you're on IS or something, the, the Islamic State and they know about it, um, then you may be on one of those lists. But I don't think it would, it would, it's not the kind of thing that anybody in this room that I'd expect to be on one of those lists. All right. So uh, I have two more questions for the panel, and then I guess maybe we'll have some time to open it up for audience questions. Can you just put up your hand if you have a question you want to ask the panel? Okay, so we got a couple of questions. There's a mic that they could start lining up at. I yeah, guess. sure. Um, let's do that. So we've got like we've got about uh, 12 minutes left. So just uh, just real quick for Riaz and Josh and Zach. Um, can you just describe what a Bitcoin meetup is like in New Hampshire? We've got the longest running Bitcoin meetup here in Manchester, New Hampshire. What could someone expect if they went to one of those, like paint a picture? Uh, it's, it's quite incredible coming from Florida and seeing this for the first time when I got here about a year ago and coming to my first Manchester Bitcoin meetup. There, on average, there's maybe like 25 or 30 uh, different people there that are all engrossed in Bitcoin or enthralled in it in such a manner that can't even be described. Um, there, there's so much technical knowledge going around the room that uh, it can be a little uh, convoluted and esoteric conversation for anyone sitting at tables around the area that are, that are not with us, but it always uh, piques interest among people that are in the room that are not with our group or uh, people overhear things and we have people coming up to us and, and realizing that we're talking about Bitcoin. Um, is there training that goes on? Yeah, absolutely. There's never a, a case where you can come to one of the Bitcoin meetups in Manchester and not find someone who's willing to buy or sell, you know, any amount up to a few hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin. Probably, you know, 
And, and we're talking about at spot where there's no premium. It's, it's extremely easy to trade Bitcoin within our community. That's probably the, one of the main shining uh, characteristics of, of, the, of the meetups is how liquid uh, the community is as far as Bitcoin transactions. It's a part of our lives that pretty much everyone that comes to the Bitcoin meetups or even the greater community in Manchester in the, in the area uh, probably use Bitcoin a number of times every single day in their regular lives. Cool. So if you're in Manchester, New Hampshire, you people out there on the internet, I'm looking at you, uh, <laughs> you should uh, stop by the Bitcoin meetups in New Hampshire. They're usually at, uh, usually on Sunday nights, is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's uh, every Sunday at uh, 6 or 7 o'clock. 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock uh, in the evening, every Sunday night. It's never really changed. It's always at Strange Brew Tavern on Market Street in Manchester. There's two, right? There's one. There's only one. Manchester Bitcoin meetup. <laughs> All right, and then just a real quick for Brian and Daryl, either one of you who wants to take this. Uh, I know both of you are interested and have, have spoken before about altcoins or just alternative uses of blockchain technology. Um, what, if any of those, do you see as being having particular relevance for New Hampshire or for the Liberty community or for the Free State Project or anything like that? I don't know. I'll let Brian actually answer the question, but uh, I have gone on record in the past as saying that Bitcoin is the Roman chariot of currencies. And what I mean by that is, you know, the Roman chariot was sort of the first real mode of transportation that people had. And it's not really being used a lot right now. Uh, and I foresee that you know in the future, I, I'm not going to project how far, but you know in the future there's going to be something like Bitcoin that definitely is the standard mode of transportation. Bitcoin might still maybe exist in several hundred years. I don't really know, uh, but I'll let Brian actually answer the question. Sure, uh, I think uh, NXT is definitely one of the which Daryl mentioned earlier. Uh, is one of the more interesting ones, particularly because right now, right now, existing right now, is a free market exchange that the world has never seen, that we know of. You know, I mean, maybe in some pirate, you know, Libertatia in Madagascar or something that existed, but it's never existed at any other time. And uh, where you can literally, you know, I mean, trade goods and, and do all the financial stuff that you're used to doing in, in the, the world today. Uh, so I think that's a pretty interesting one, but the really the more interesting one is I really think there should be an FSP coin. I think there should be a New Hampshire coin or whatever Shire coin, whatever you want to call it, uh, because I don't, I don't believe that there should be one currency. Quite frankly, uh, I think that specie, you know, uh, and, and like specialization is the key to a really great economy. And having a whole slew of coins uh, is a wonderful thing that can address the, you know, the specific needs of a specific area. Like in New Hampshire, you have the White Mountains. Okay, Bitcoin doesn't work in the White Mountains. There's no internet. You know, what are you going to do? And so, you know, coming up with coins and things of that nature are probably a lot easier than actually creating further infrastructure. Uh, and this is, you know, this is the libertarian dream where, oh, North Dakota has its own bank. Well, the Shire could have its own bank too, or not a bank, but they could have their own financial system if they want it with something like ShareCoin. So I think that would be a really great, uh, a great innovation. And I think it would have genuine value because clearly there's people here in this audience. There's value here, you know, right there. So, uh, so I think that's uh, that would be interesting. But otherwise, yeah, NXT would be would be intriguing. Cool. All right, let's open it up to questions from the audience. Let's have that. So yeah, uh, I listen to Free Talk Live uh, some of the time, and uh, you know, before it begins, I hear Daryl, you know, list the uh, 
that day's price for gold, silver, and Bitcoin. I noticed that gold and silver haven't been doing very well lately. So what I'm wondering is uh, the stagnation that we've seen uh, throughout the majority of this calendar year uh, with the price of Bitcoin, do you think that the uh, that's due mostly or perhaps entirely to uh, a larger dynamic whereby uh, like the Federal Reserve is uh, doing their shenanigans and like suppressing the price of all alternative medium of media of exchange? I don't know. I, you know, it, it would be easy to say, yeah, the Fed, they're you know, suppressing blah, blah, blah. But maybe that's a conspiracy theory. Maybe it's conspiracy fact. I don't really know. Could, it's one of those things to where they, there's so many different factors at play to where I don't think anybody really knows what it's going to do. I remember last year about this time when Bitcoin was hovering around $200. Uh, you know, from like the time of Porkfest 2013 until late October of last year, it was around 100. Then it started creeping up to 200. And then the next thing I know, it's 400, then 800, and then, you know, 1,000. And when it was like, you know, $1,100 per Bitcoin is when I actually sold a car to Rob Mathias for Bitcoin in what is believed to be the first ever person-to-person -person vehicle transaction anywhere in the world. It's not the first time that anybody bought a car with Bitcoin because somebody did buy a car directly from Tesla with Bitcoin. Cool, all right. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think the mic was on for that last question. For he Matt, just wasn't close enough, I don't think. No, we, we turned it on. Oh. But the question, for the recording purposes, the question was, basically, is there manipulation going on? With is, the is it? Yeah. Uh, we, we don't have time. We'll, we'll go to Emmanuel. Yeah, just uh, we're just trying to take it. Right. Uh, where it's nothing with Bitcoin itself, where there's a larger trend of all alternative media of exchange in general being suppressed. So, not you know, no inherent flaw or, uh, you know, nothing with just Bitcoin. Great. All right, cool. Let's, right. let's go to Emmanuel. Okay, so my question is uh, more future projected. Uh, so, we had, like, maybe like a couple weeks ago, the first Bitcoin marriage or black chain blockchain marriage that actually didn't get recorded because blockchain or the uh, Bitcoin software had taken the notes on they, they uh, deactivated the ability to add a note to a transaction so that uh, Bitcoin marriage that was supposed to have happened never actually got recorded on the blockchain that's probably for the best yeah. <laughs> all right so my question is more uh, in the future, I've heard of the Ether coin or whatever. So I was wondering what uh, other um, use of the blockchain you can see. Do you see like crypto vote, uh, voting or uh, crypto uh, the blockchain being used as for passport or international uh, ID or, uh, or anything like that? Sure, uh, there's a lot of that getting developed. Actually, Chris Ellis came up with like this cryptographically secure passport um, there's a lot of people talking about doing voting, uh, but in my opinion, all these are terrible ideas. Uh, first off, putting X onto a blockchain does not is not innovation, okay? And if X isn't a good idea without a blockchain, that doesn't mean it's a good idea once it's put on a blockchain, okay? <laughs> so, yeah, any of these government services or whatever that they want to do is, is just an atrocity waiting to happen. Uh, I'm not saying it's necessarily Skynet, but uh, like even voting, voting is a good one that a lot of people like to bring up because it's so easy to implement. 
but voting, the most powerful aspect of voting, and this is a particularly powerful one legally in New Hampshire, as I understand it, is the secret ballot. You're not going to have a secret ballot when there's cryptography that can get cracked at some point. It doesn't exist. There's always a, you know, a record of that, which you don't want. That's the whole point. It's the whole beauty of voting, quote unquote, if there is a beauty, is the secret ballot. Okay, and I'm not saying that there's a beauty to it. So, yeah, that, that's, that's my opinion on that. International ID? Uh, international ID, again, that's something that's being developed. Uh, I'm not a fan necessarily of passports because really any kind of ID system just too much reminds me of papers, please, papers, papers. You know, and, and even if it's voluntary, it may work if it's voluntary, but then the question becomes just like U.S. citizenship. Sure, your U.S. citizenship is voluntary too, but try leaving, you know, with your skin still anyway, and, and you're, you're in for uh, some trouble. So it depends on, the, the question becomes with like an ID system, uh, what does it, what happens if I want to leave or revoke it? And if there are stipulations, I don't feel that that's freedom. And for a lot more on that, you can uh, tune into Brian's podcast, Sovereign Tech, S-O-V-R-Y-N Tech, a weekly show where he discusses a lot of these issues in depth. And just maybe one quick last question from Aaron. Um, I know that in BitTorrent technology, I saw over time that the, the, the uh, media industries kind of had to grow to compete. They couldn't directly use force against the users. They had to compete and make things easier and split things up. I see currency as something directly competing with government. Do you foresee a method in which the government may try and clamp down on you, though it's decentralized, or how will they? They're compete? already trying to clamp down by instituting all of these weird, goofy, conflicting rules. Where FinCEN says that Bitcoin has money, the IRS says that Bitcoin has property, and the New York Department of Financial Services is trying to say that if anybody accepts Bitcoin and one of their customers may have driven through New York that one time, that you have to get name, date, serial number, you know, semen count and everything <laughs> else in order to be able to do business with, and you have to collect that for all of your customers everywhere in the world because that one guy drove through New York that one time. So you do have government agencies that are trying to prevent it. And what I think most of us up here are trying to do is find loopholes around what the government is trying to do. And I have actually gained some level of notoriety because as far as is known, I'm the first presidential candidate anywhere in the world to accept Bitcoin. And I actually wrote a letter to the FEC, which is the Federal Election Commission, saying this is the last letter, the first and the last letter that you will ever receive from me. I am not abiding by any of your laws. I think that all of your laws are bupkis, and I will be accepting Bitcoin and other alternative forms of currency. So I, I think that you know I can speak for at least Brian and Riaz in saying that we're trying to find ways around their regulations, and I don't really care what the regulations are. Now what I want to know is, the, was the word bupkis really used in the letter? No. <laughs> All right, so I think we're out of time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to hear more from me, you can go to letstalkbitcoin.com, subscribe to the podcast. It comes out twice a week. Daryl is at fpp.cc. fpp.cc. The audio is fppradio.com, and I actually have to go jump in the not bus, drive to the LRN studio, and I've got a show in like half an hour. Thank you for being here, Daryl. Brian's at Sovereign Tech, S-O-V-R-Y-N Tech.com. Riaz, do you have anything? Find you at the Manchester Bitcoin meetups and you have a website or anything? Um, you can find me on Facebook under Agoracab. Agoracab. Did you register Agora.cab yet? 
I might be changing the name of the, the project eventually, I'm not sure. Oh, exciting things to come. And uh, Josh and Zach, Lamasu uh, Bitcoin Machine, where's your website? Yeah, lamasu.is, so that's uh, L-A-M-A-S-S-U dot I-S. I-S is for Iceland, by the way. It's, Iceland. It's not I-S. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to change it. I don't think they've gotten uh, UN uh, <laughs> All right, recognition yet. <laughs> and the Lamasu, the Sumerian beast of liberty. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Let's have a big round of applause for our panelists. Thank you so much for being here. Wow, great panel, really informative as expected. And we got another one coming up almost immediately. If you need a quick break, we'll take one for just a couple minutes. And then uh, we'll have our uh, te technical panel. Uh, the tech panel, come on up and take the stage. All right, there you have it. Can you beat that kind of action? Really? Uh, a wonderful time. Again, it was great that people got to get in there with some really good questions. Uh, and of course, all the panelists were phenomenal. I really enjoyed it. But now let's get right on to the next panel. And these really did happen back to back at Keenvention. Uh, and, and again, both were, you know, very appropriately running uh, back to back uh, because they, they definitely dovetailed into each other. Even though I tried to kind of like make Bitcoin not part of the tech panel that kind of happened last year where, where Bitcoin questions got asked quite a bit. Uh, of course, Bitcoin was definitely, you know, on a much hotter run, uh, last year during Keenvention. So, but, uh, this was a great tech panel. It got to, we got to talk a lot about startups. We got to talk a lot about, um, not just tech, but science, because I actually, I got to have Max Pito, uh, who is a good friend and, you know, just a, a phenomenal guy. He was there to talk about, you know, something that I've mentioned on Sovereign Tech before, listeners will remember, uh, when I talked about biopunks. This is a real live biopunk here, okay? <laughs> or at least, uh, you know, a biotech guy uh, that works for SENS. And at some point, boy, I'd love to have him on, on Sovereign Tech. And, uh... But anyway, you're really going to love this. Had uh, Johnson from who you may know from Free Talk Live, if you're a listener of that. I love having him on, on board uh, with just about anything I do because he really, his bullshit meter is, I mean, set to kill. It's, <laughs> it's not set to stun. It is set to kill. Uh, and, I, and I really like that because he'll even, you know, uh, correct me sometimes. But uh, admittedly in this one, actually there's a point where he tried to correct me. I ended up being right, but you can listen up for that. Not that we're keeping score, uh, you know, we, uh, very, very, uh, uh, friendly conversations always with Johnson. So anyway, uh, Steve Zamanek was, was there who very knowledgeable guy, who's really the backbone of tech, uh, in the keen area. So it was really great to have him. We were supposed to have a third panelist on there or a fourth panelist. I'm sorry. That was supposed to be on there. And he actually, uh, there was a bit of drama around him being on uh, or not being there because I don't know, he, he screwed up a, a million. I, who knows what's true? That's the bottom line. So, but he was going to talk about game design because there was a game that he apparently quote unquote, apparently uh, was working on. And regardless, that's that, you know, he wasn't there and whether that game is, you know, if he has anything to do with it, that's a whole other story. But uh, I actually, it really just gave me the opportunity, you know, to talk a little bit about Zomia offline games. Uh, I didn't mention Hypercronius by name, but, uh, you know, just to, just to bring up that, yeah, you know, well, I'm a one man, you know, game dev team here uh, putting stuff together. And so it was great to get that out 
uh, as well. So, you know, listen up for that. I'll come back at the end of this. The tech panel, it was really enjoyable. We got to go kind of into overtime. Uh, Ian Freeman was very gracious about that. And we got some pretty good questions uh, towards the end of it. So, you know, do check this out. A lot of great info, you know, for, for not just for cypherpunks, but for biopunks, you know, the, the whole gamut. If you're interested in science and technology, there's something here for you. And certainly uh, a lot of discussion of real incentives, uh, about coming to New Hampshire in general, just by, you know, kind of the, the system that exists as it is. So take a listen and I'll be right back after, uh, after the panel's done. So with uh, no further ado, we're going to bring our next panel host up. He'll tell you more about our esteemed technical wizard panelists here. The technology panel host of Sovereign Tech, Brian Sovereign is back for it. He did it last year and well, you know, he hosts a show about tech. So he seems like the appropriate guy to host this panel. And uh, he really is very, very knowledgeable about these topics, as are the guests. We'll learn more about them here in a moment. And, of course, the mic will be open for questions for you as well. So uh, welcome back, Brian Sovereign from Sovereign Tech. Appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. All right. So real pleasure to be doing this again. Last year's panel was fantastic. Uh, always technology and science, which we're actually going to touch into both in a way, uh, is the genuine ever-evolving topic. And it's something where you could actually, I mean, we have a, a different panelist here this year, but you, I could bring in the same guys pretty much every year, and there are completely new questions and completely new answers to really get addressed and solved. Uh, so it's really great to have really brilliant people here in New Hampshire that can address the ever-evolving world of science and technology. Uh, myself, of course, uh, as Ian mentioned, I'm a host of the podcast Sovereign Tech, uh, which you can listen to at sobrynetech.com. Uh, myself, I am a, uh, I've been a cypherpunk for, God, 15, over 15 years now. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind calling myself that. But, you know, something, an area, and I'm because I'm going to let uh, my panelists introduce themselves, but an area that doesn't get described enough, and it's only recently started to get some attention, and I, need, I think it needs attention, particularly in New Hampshire, especially when earlier you had a great secessionist uh, panel, is the area of biopunks. Now, cypherpunks, if you don't know what that is, that's uh, you know, people that are interested in cryptography and technology in general, okay, and pretty much interested in your privacy. And biopunks are your, you know, your scientists, your biologists, whichever, that are doing things without the permission, per se, uh, or at least with as little as possible, but they are the entrepreneurs in the science space. And I am really glad to have one of those here, and I'm gonna let him introduce himself, and then I'll let the other two panelists as well. Uh, Max Pito. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Max Pito. So um, the biotech area that I work in is, um, some of you have been introduced myself, I work for the SENS Research Foundation. Maybe some of you have heard of a guy named Aubrey de Grey with a huge beard who wants to, what he calls, cure aging. Um, so I work in longevity science. Basically, um, the projects I work in try and figure out what goes wrong with us as we get older uh, on a molecular level, and then try and figure out exactly how to fix those things that go wrong as we get older. Um, so I have a number of projects that I work on that are all related to, to that topic, longevity research. Okay, yeah, and uh, I mean, that's... You know, one of the real keys to, to perhaps beating the state is to outlive it. And so if Max's work 
uh, could help us live forever. Maybe we can outlive these empires because every empire ends, right? Uh, Steve Zamanik, if you'd introduce yourself and a little bit of what you do. Uh, I'm Steve Zamanik. I lived in the Keene area for about five years. Uh, do small business computer consulting right now. Um, uh, kind of freelance. Uh, I'm kind of a behind-the-scenes activist. Uh, here in New Hampshire, you're really solving in Keene. You're solving a lot of the tech issues that really come up. You're right. Like, you're that. You're the guy behind the scenes, making sure that everything actually works right in a real way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Johnson. I'm Johnson Rice. I am a. Uh, I've been Keene for about two years now. I'm a longtime host of Free Talk Live, and I am a designer. So if this were sort of like the TED of uh, panels here, I'd be the design portion of that. Uh, I've done uh, this, I helped to put this together, I didn't actually design the, uh, the free key banner, but uh, I've done a lot of the flyers and whatnot that you see around, um, and so that's really uh, my sort of involvement is, is in being behind the scenes activism, is that I put together a lot of the uh, literature that you will see getting passed around. Also, a very, uh, he's one of the, the few guys that I really, I can talk about like any up and coming like tech news, and he's really on the pulse, and often he'll actually call me out on a lot of crap too, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> so I love having him, uh, having him around. Uh, but anyway, let's get into the questions. We've got a few here, and then of course we will open it up to, uh, to questions from the audience. Uh, but I guess I'll start off, and actually Johnson, I'd like to start off with you. Um, what do you think is the importance of activists having knowledge, uh, like I mentioned you have, uh, and awareness about you know, science and tech in New Hampshire? Like, how does that apply to activists? Okay, so I think uh, three things. I think it increases employability, it increases respectability, and I think it increases believability. Uh, especially a, a background in science and getting at least basic science uh, literacy, I think it's I think it helps with a, a, an inoculation against believing in random conspiracy theories. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that that's something that runs rampant in the liberty movement in general. Um, just among these particular circles, there are a lot of people who are predisposed to questioning things and question everything to the point where they think that, they, oh, this, this must be what's going on because they don't have a, an understanding of what's going on. Um, I actually uh, printed out for this um, the scientific method, <laughs> which I don't think that a lot of people who have a, even a basic, you know, don't even have a basic understanding of science understand what the scientific method is because they only get through the first half of it. And I think the first half of the scientific method is essentially what makes people into a conspiracy theorist, which is, uh, is ask a question, do background research, and construct a hypothesis. And I think most people stop there. Um, and they just are hypothesizing and just throwing random wild you know, accusations out there. The, the last part of the scientific method is to test your hypothesis by doing an experiment, to analyze your data and draw a conclusion, and then to communicate your results, and to start over again, and to continue going through the, that process over and over and over again um, to try and solidify your information. And I you think, want to falsify your claims. Yes. Yeah. And I don't think that a lot of people get that far. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And actually, one of the uh, one of the points of uh, I mentioned biopunks earlier. One of the things they say is that you need, people need to have scientific literacy, not just understanding of what's going on, but literacy, meaning that you can practice it. 
Did you have more on that, Johnson? Or was that... No, I think that pretty much covers okay. it. I just think that you know uh, people need to get their facts straight and to really not just get to that hypothesis part and really take it a step further. I think what it is is it's essentially. I think that people who are into conspiracy theories are essentially doing lazy science. Uh, they get halfway through and just stop and think that their, uh, you know, their guess and their hypothesis that they've come up with is acceptable without really doing anything or looking up anybody who has gone in and done actual testing and actual um, getting results and actually working with, you know, I've, I've got 9-11 going through my head because that's something that the average layperson couldn't, uh, go and test. I mean, you're not going to be able to go and build a skyscraper and test it, but if you really do research and look at the people who are doing tests, then you start to get a real background information and not you're not just uh, you know coming up with guesses. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a that's a great leeway to, to talk to Max, but I, I want to point out in particular, you did a great episode of Free Talk Live, because you will guest uh, co-host on that often enough, where you're talking about this black snow conspiracy right. <laughs> and and the people and this is the thing with the internet you know it's it's a you know it's a, a blessing and a curse because this information hits you so fast that if you're not willing to go with the scientific method if you're not willing to go with falsifying your beliefs and claims uh, you will really uh, you'll believe what you're reading before anybody even says anything. I mean, and tons of people were saying, oh, yeah, look, this black snow well, is yeah, just to spell it with the background yeah. is that. What, what happened? It was like a really early snow in the south or something? In Georgia. In yeah. Georgia. The snow went very far south, reached very far south, and people thought that the snow was made of plastic because that was going around the Internet, and people were holding lighters up to snowballs and wondering why the snowballs weren't melting and dripping all over the place and why the lighter left a black stain on it as though it was burning like styrofoam. Yeah, so they thought it was all chemtrails. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that they're, whatever they're spraying in the air was making the snow. Because they didn't know that when you burn butane, it leaves residue. And they didn't know that capillary action in the snowball, when you have lots of small particles of ice, are going to wick water into the rest of the snowball. Right. Um, they actually thought that the snowball was burning like plastic. Yeah. Which. Really, I mean, I don't think that it should take much more than basic thought to think there's not going to be able to be that much plastic spread across. <laughs> I mean, it really doesn't take that much effort, yeah. I think, but you know. <laughs> yeah. So, Max, uh, yeah, I mean, the question to you, you know, what do you think the importance is for activists, you know, in New Hampshire having the knowledge and awareness about, you know, science? Which I. Yeah, so I do have a few thoughts on this. One um, that helps me personally is to know. Uh, what other activists here are interested in science and biotech, the, the areas that I'm in. Um, and that helps, that helps people create uh, startup companies, valuable um, products and services to be able to pair up with one another uh, and create valuable things. And that does uh, a lot of good for the local economy to increase uh, people's ability to basically take care of themselves, to be self-responsible, uh, and to trade with others. Uh, so knowing one another and what other things that people in New Hampshire are, are into is helpful to connect uh, in, a, in these different areas of expertise in science and technology. Um, uh, one other important uh, aspect of knowing about science and tech in New Hampshire is that because it, uh, a lot of these things are so high tech, uh, they're also, they tend to be incredibly valuable. So if you're looking for kinds of work that might be able to pay a lot of money or, or to be able to create a lot of value, uh, a lot of times these high tech things are very valuable. So I think that's good to consider too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Steve, do you have any thoughts on the importance of tech knowledge for activists? Is it just to like maybe give you a break 
so that, so that you don't have to constantly be uh, you know firemanning uh, the network. Um, my answer to this, I think, was kind of kind of was kind of going to lead into our next question sure, a little bit actually. Um, I, I was going to share a story uh, when I, when I first moved to Keene. Um, I was doing some Drupal development work, uh, and I like to go to uh, tech-type uh, gatherings, and you know, like I started a 2600 meeting here in Keene, which is the first Friday of every month. We we meet at seven o'clock at uh, local burger and just have some burgers and talk tech. 2600 is the Hacker Quarterly. It's a very popular magazine, and a lot of communities have kind of built around it. It's a great publication if anyone wants Yeah, in the back of the magazine, the, the, the back cover, I think it is, um, they have a listing of uh, meetings all over the world. So uh, if you want to start one in your area, you uh, they, they ask you to try to get a group before you just write them. Um, so we had a group, so we wrote them and said we're having a meeting uh, every, uh, on uh, 7 o'clock at Local Burger, and it's, the, there's actually, it's kind of a funny story. They, the reason why it's the first Friday of every month, it's the first Friday of, of the month uh, all over the world. So part of it had to do with some government harassment that one of the meetings experienced. So they decided, well, we have meetings all over the world at the same time. They can't be everywhere. <laughs> Pretty clever. So you were doing some Drupal development, right? So I, I, uh, when I first moved to New Hampshire, I was getting, you know, I, and I knew there was a Drupal users group in Manchester, and I knew nothing about it. And um, I thought, you know, so I so I'm gonna go check out this Drupal meetup group and um, uh, meet some meet some people that I have that I don't know. And I got there a little early. I sat down in the room that it was supposed to be in, waiting for people to show up, and. Um, uh, the first person to um, walk in was uh, Brian Travis, uh, who was a free stater. And um, then next thing I know, Seth Cohn walks in. And more than half the meeting was free staters. <laughs> and I wasn't even expecting a single one to be a free stater. I just didn't know anything about it. I thought, oh, Drupal Users Group, I'll, I'll go show up to that. And um, it's, it's kind of funny how um, it, it, it as far as uh, you know, as, as far as liberty activists are really taking over the scene of uh, technology in New Hampshire. Um, yeah, and part of that is, I mean, Drupal is relative to web development, right? And part yeah. of that is, and actually, it seems like a lot of free staters are people in the tech field, uh, and that's because that can be seemingly done from anywhere. As long as you've got an internet connection, you can do this sort of thing. And so you see that as very relevant uh, to even having like, a job in that so that you can be a part of the community, you know, even come here. Would, would that be accurate, Steve? Uh, I, I think that's accurate. The, the other thing is it might be one of those things where a lot of people found out about the Free State Project and found libertarianism or whatever through the internet. Sure. So the people who are going to be on the computer the most are probably the IT people. So they're most likely to come to the ideas or find out about the Free State Project because they're spending too much time on yeah. the browser. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's a wonder if it's a cause and effect because a lot of Silicon Valley, a lot of tech uh, people do seem to be, honestly, anarchists of different flavors and colors, certainly. Uh, but what brings one to the other? You know, which chicken or egg? Who knows? 
Uh, but yeah, it is interesting how people, you know, certainly can meet up, much like they were talking about the Bitcoin meetups earlier, uh, the same effect. And I think that is a good, uh, good lead up to, to question number two, which is uh, what is the potential, you know, for tech and biotech, you know, science startups, uh, software companies, game companies, whatever, in New Hampshire? Uh, Steve, actually, why, why don't I start with you? Do you have any other comments on that? On like, what is the potential? You just, I mean, or is that your previous story? I, I think my previous story kind of covered it. But yeah. I'll let Johnson go. Right sure. Okay. Stuff on this one. So I did some research <laughs> to answer this question. Um, so Wait, you use the scientific method. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Part of it. So uh, yeah. <laughs> so according to the Boston Globe, New Hampshire was ranked ninth in the country in tech employment in 2012. Um, the average asking price for office space around Manchester is about $11 per square foot. However, in uh, Kendall Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it hovers around $50 per square foot. Um, so obviously there's a huge, huge cost advantage to New Hampshire in terms of tech companies starting up here. So there's no sales tax. The personal tax burden is among the lowest in the country according to uh, the Tax Foundation. It's a sure. problem in DC. They did some research into that. And you know, there's very large companies. So there's some companies here like Digital Equipment Corporation, um, Equal Logic, which was a storage, data storage company that Dell bought, was here, Softdesk Incorporated out of Henniker. Um, they were sold to Autodesk. Um, which is, a, you know, they're a 3D AutoCAD kind of company. Um, and uh, Dean Kamen. Uh, oh, in Se Manchester. Yeah, Segway. This, yeah, this is the guy that invented the Segway along with a whole slew of incredible technologies that are even still just coming out. So, you know, there are a lot of tech companies, a lot of tech opportunities in New Hampshire, and there should be more. And I actually, the other thing that I did to research this question is I went and I looked at the um, Business Inc. Uh, top 5,000 companies in the United States and just filtered it down to New Hampshire and I was looking at the um, the different companies that are on you know that, that are the top uh, you know either three-year growth or top revenue in New Hampshire and of those uh, companies that made the you know the Inc top 5,000 um, the 61% of them are tech companies that's amazing so, okay yeah and certainly with Massachusetts I mean just across the border a very short drive is, I mean, iRobot, uh, a whole right. slew of tech companies that are, I mean, a stone's throw away from just crossing the border. And in fact, I mean, this isn't a tech company, but uh, in, in Nashua, the, the, uh, the Massachusetts town just outside of Nashua had a Trader Joe's. That Trader Joe's closed down uh, a year or two ago and just moved a mile down the street <laughs> just to be in New Hampshire. So I mean, so there's a lot of advantages and companies are already doing it, tech or not. Uh, it's certainly happening. Uh, did you have more, Johnson? Or sure. Jobs? I mean, I just like to see more companies spread out too, from you know, and get farther into New Hampshire from that Boston border. I don't think that it's necessary for them again because technology can be located anywhere. Sure. And as more and more fiber and as more uh, wireless technologies uh, get installed that are improving the bandwidth of New Hampshire, I think that these companies can be located anywhere, and it's advantageous. I think in the long run for these companies to really think about that because. People are going to, especially as decentralization increases uh, for all this type of stuff, people are going to want to be working more from home in general, and they're going to want to work in nicer environments, and I think New Hampshire is perfect for that. Right, right. So Max, I mean, what do you feel? You know, what are the potentials for, like, say more a startup? We talked about some big businesses and medium businesses. What about for a startup? 
Um, so in my area of uh, science and tech, I did notice a few interesting things about um, New Hampshire. Uh, and then one potential downside that I've seen so far, this is mostly anecdotal. Um, first of all, I, uh, I, one of the really attractive things about New Hampshire that I'm excited about, and the reason, one of the reasons why I moved here about a year ago, uh, was that the no income tax, uh, state income tax. So uh, one of the projects I work on is I work on research reagents. I basically try and manufacture them, and they're very expensive. And uh, once my manufacturing process gets working, I could go from having no revenues to having hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars of revenue in the same year. Um, I was previously working on the same project in California where I want to say the top income tax bracket, just for the state income tax, is around 13%, and that's on top of federal income taxes. Um, so New Hampshire was really attractive for me to kind of incubate my biotech business here, my manufacturing business, um, and when I do, if and when I do get that manufacturing process uh, completed and I start selling products, then I'm already located and as a resident uh, in, a, in a no income tax state. So that's great. Um, another anecdotal thing about science and tech that I thought was pretty nice about New Hampshire that I've experienced so far was that when I was looking around New Hampshire, I, I, visited, um, I visited Nashville, I visited uh, Manchester, uh, Keene, Lebanon. Um, something I noticed that was really attractive to me is that a lot of the the zoning boards in these cities are actually really laid back. Uh, and so like, so why, the reason why I mentioned the zoning boards is that um, there's some biotech that can be very dangerous, uh, that some people like work with like deadly viruses and, and terrible chemicals and things like that, so you have to be careful uh, what you, how you treat those. And then there's the other end of the spectrum that things are kind of very simple, uh, not dangerous, kind of working with everyday chemicals that, that isn't a big deal. In some other states that I've worked in, some of those zoning board people are very, very aggressive. They treat everyone as if you're working with like HIV or Ebola and it's like totally scary when really you're like, you know, mixing colors together and changing the pH. Like you shouldn't be regulated that hard. And, and, and so what I noticed in New Hampshire, uh, like for one example, I looked around at Enfield, uh, which is a little east of Lebanon, and they were so laid back about locating a biotech business there. He, he asked me, uh, someone on the zoning board asked me, what kind of chemicals are you using? You know, I made him a list of you know, like the stuff I bought. He said, oh yeah, yeah, come, come here. We want you to make jobs. Come over here. And so they were really uh, very welcoming and accommodating uh, for locating my biotech business. Uh, I'm in Lebanon now, but I did consider Enfield. Um, one potential uh, downside that I've seen, this might be my location, is that uh, kind of different to uh, technology uh, with internet and web, web work, is that with biotech work, there's a significant network effects in that uh, if you locate in a place where you can interact with a lot of other biotech people, that's very helpful because biology is extremely, extremely complicated. And so people tend to specialize and know a few things pretty well and everything else they're ignorant about. And the reason why that's helpful to, to kind of be in the same place with a lot of them is that you can pick each other's brains and so being in the same place is very important. So me being near Dartmouth right now is interesting. And as you mentioned, Brian, being near Boston, either in Nashville or even in Manchester, uh, is also pretty attractive. Sure, yeah. I mean, does anybody here really want to leave the government up, you know, controlling science? Anyone? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, it kind of does right now. I, I, I'm on. Yeah. So we definitely, <laughs> you want to be listening to this. Uh, you know, to find out how that's not to happen. Anyway. I've actually got a question for Max. Uh, yeah. that. Sure. Um, do you see any technology emerging now? I mean, I know you were talking about proximity with uh, other people 
needing to discuss biotech because it's so complicated. Do you see any technologies coming out now or emerging that are allowing that level of communication or even approaching that, le that level of communication that would allow you to have discussions on that level remotely? Is there anything that is emerging or are things that are close to good enough but maybe not quite or whatnot that, allow, that would allow that uh, need for proximity to go away? That's a great question. There, that's kind of a, a grayscale where you can have a little bit of interaction and then like you're one-on-one -on -one in the same room. Um, I have done quite a bit of like telepresence or telecommuting uh, with people that I know in the biotech industry in other states. I have one guy I'm collaborating with uh, in New York, in Syracuse, New York, and then some other people in California. So we do use Skype and conference calls, um, video or just audio conferencing fairly often, and that is a big help. Um, I don't know if there, there's any other uh, technology that could kind of enhance the bandwidth uh, like that. I've heard of something like a virtual telepresence where you might leave a Skype video chat window open right in your lab. So as you're sitting working, you have a computer in front of you with the video of another lab that's you know 2,000 miles away, and you guys can almost hang out and share ideas. Um, a I've, from my experience, a lot of kind of serendipity comes from hanging out in the same room, right. staring at data going, what the hell does this mean? And then someone else chimes in and says, oh, what about that? Uh, so increasing that bandwidth would, would definitely be valuable, I think. Yeah, there probably, there's, at least at the moment, there's no real, at least an expensive replacement for having like a community uh, to like right in the same room, like you said, serendipity uh, to, to come together with. Um, this uh, this question more to Steve and Johnson, uh, you know, as it relates to activism, do you feel that looking into and we'll talk about some technology solutions later on, but are there any older technologies, you know, something like not a smartphone uh, or even not even a computer uh, that that you think would be important for New Hampshire activists to use to consider, uh, or are these things pretty much gone by the wayside? Uh, can I can I uh, go back uh, just a yeah yeah. Question. Uh, I, I think New Hampshire is a uh, very good state for startups. As Max said, the uh, regulations were pretty laid back. And if you look at, one, one of the things I was looking up before I came here is, uh, you know, best states for startups and getting all these top 10 lists and top, you know, our state rankings 1 through 50. And um, one thing I noticed is New Hampshire was actually all over the map on a lot of these um, uh, top ten lists and stuff. It's, you know, some some sometimes it was ranked pretty poorly. In fact, but if you actually like looked into what they were using to um, what they were using to rank these, a lot of times it's like how much money is the government going to give me? Uh, type of uh, things to rank and things that really don't have anything to do with this. You know, uh, the state. You know, the, either geographically yeah, or government. It doesn't have anything to do with the advantages. It, it has nothing to do with the advantages. Like, for example, one thing that I, uh, I think New Hampshire has a whole lot of potential for uh, to be the next Silicon Valley. What uh, you know, there's 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 certain things that are lacking. Um, but uh, as um, Brian was talking about, like the Trader Joe's moving a mile down the road. If you look at um, uh, it was uh, Reuters. Uh, I forget which polling agency uh, did it. Um, it was Gallup poll. Gallup poll. Uh, they did a survey. They they, they questioned people of 
uh, every state, and they basically ask them, do you want to leave the state you're currently in? And um, New Hampshire was among the states that people least wanted to leave. And if you look at states that have uh, big, tech, uh, big tech startups and stuff, like Massachusetts around the Boston area, or you look in California and stuff, they, had, they were ranked very poorly. People want to leave those places. So if you wanted to have a tech startup, I mean, especially with some of the three-staters uh, who want to move there, I don't think it's hard to recruit people, hey, move to New Hampshire. I know people who work in tech companies in, in Massachusetts, and all the employees, they're like, yeah, let's, let's move the company to, to New Hampshire. It, it's not, so I think it'd be easy to, 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 to get um, people. Uh, the regulations are pretty lax. Um, starting a business isn't uh, too difficult to, you know, form an LLC and stuff. Some companies, or some states, it's a nightmare just to fill an LLC out. Sure. Um, yeah, that's really exciting to hear. And so I, I, I really do think New, uh, New Hampshire's got some potential. And I, one, one thing that I think it's also lacking is um, I think it could use a boost in um, venture capital funding. And I see, you know, people like uh, Peter Thiel, who are proclaimed libertarians and um, yeah, he's giving gi giving um, money to the Seasteading Institute and stuff. And I've, I've heard figures between half a million and a million dollars. And uh, I can't imagine, one, one, one idea that someone came and suggested was, we have these think tanks. Uh, you know, in like Washington D.C. area, where they write white papers that basically state the obvious about how all this regulation is bad for the economy and stuff like that. How, how awesome would it be if we had essentially a hacker space in New Hampshire that uh, where people could, you know, make their living like like at these think tanks, uh, basically designing tools for activists to use. Yeah, absolutely. To, to, and how much potential that would have. Yeah, I think it's interesting because uh, actually VentureBeat recently did a story where they were polling uh, a lot of the what they call elite tech company, uh, you know, VCs and, and uh, you know, uh, CEOs of tech companies. And all of them said the number one thing getting in the way of innovation was government regulation. Every single one of them said that that was the biggest issue. Uh, and I think it's interesting too, uh, Tim Draper and others, other VCs uh, have been recommending a six-state initiative for California where they want to break it up into little, uh, you know, smaller states because the, a huge state like that is just, it's antithetical to getting things done. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a great book called I think it's Small is Beautiful, um, and, and in that the quote is, is that anything, anywhere there's a problem, there's something too big. And, and I think it's absolutely true every single time. And New Hampshire is, is fantastic in the fact that it is a small state. Uh, you know, to where things really can get done. Uh, go ahead, Johnson. I think there's a couple other potential advantages there too with the, you know, what Steve was saying about people not wanting to leave New Hampshire. Um, one of the very, a big strategic advantage for a company is to engage in brain drain. In other sure. words, to get uh, the best and the brightest to leave other companies and to come to work for them and to really develop that brand and that, uh, you know, the potential of that company to make things amazing. And so there's been a lot of stories of uh, employees being traded back and forth between Apple and Facebook and Google. Um, and, you know, where people are moving to, which is the best company. And that's why Google has been known for being infamous with 
their dining areas and their parking and their babysitting for employees and their playrooms and toys and crazy stuff to make people come to these companies. And it seems to me that there would be a huge advantage in, uh, you know, having a a company located in a place that people want to live and uh, where they're not being completely burdened by regulations and taxes. And it would make sense for... Uh, some of these companies to come here also because of the fact that so many of even the upper echelons of these companies at least they start their careers as very liberty minded yeah um, some true. of them end up a little less so um, uh, one uh, idea that one person that comes to mind unfortunately is uh, the story of uh, MakerBot uh, right. which was uh, swallowed by Stratasys because of some of the actions of Brie Pettis who started to be um, he started out very open source minded and just everyone around him or a lot of people around him just talked about how he kind of just turned darker and darker and darker in terms of uh, you know how open he wanted to be with everything as time went on and just getting kind of greedy and ended up getting, selling out to Stratasys and then getting fired immediately. Yeah. Um, so that was you know a very sad story but I would think that there are a lot of uh, upper echelons uh, uh, you know CEOs and uh, um, executives at these companies that are probably uh, you know, like you said in these surveys, want less government regulation and want less, uh, and you know, less involvement in the government and their companies. And I would think that that would be ideal for them to move to New Hampshire, make their sure. employees happier, drain off other, drain employees from other companies, and not have to worry about being burdened. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, certainly a form of activism could be had that is really just making sure that people realize how attractive New Hampshire is to tech companies. Uh, because of things that they already realize, uh, you know, and, and things of that nature. So uh, I want to go back to the question of, you know, what older technologies, I don't want to spend too much time on this one, um, but what older technologies do you think still perhaps have use? Like radio seems to be very popular in Keene. Uh, you know, using personal radios, do you think that these things uh, should continue to be used? Uh, or are there others that aren't being used? Maybe that should. I disagree with the question. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the way you worded the question when you, uh, you know, because I got asked for the question. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, is the way you said is that, uh, you know, you said, how do you, uh, as it relates to activism, do you feel that looking at older technology, using radio more as compared to smartphones, is an important thing for new activists, New Hampshire activists to consider? And I sort of responded to this with, uh, well, no. <laughs> I, I don't think that the Balfan radios that we use here in Keene especially are older technology. They're not. And I don't think that radio is an older technology either any more than electricity is. Sure, it's fair. Um, so I don't think that just because a technology has been around or known about for a longer period of time makes it older, but I think that the best tool for the job is whatever technology suits that need. And, that, and you know, for example, with radios, using that example, I think many times they're far superior to cell phones because... With the texts and the calls and cell phones, people are getting inundated, um, right. and you're getting a message from the the network of activists here when it's on a radio, it's a separate device, and it comes through immediately, and it's right there. And it's federated, right? It's, yeah, it's not. Uh, it doesn't require another service. Right. So it's it's just it's immediate, and, and it's it comes out of the radio and into your ears directly. There's no you know there's no putting it aside and whatnot uh, like you would with a text or you would right. with uh, we've all started using this Telegram app uh, recently, which Steve hates. Um, <laughs> we can talk about that later. Broken. <laughs> we can talk about that later. But uh, <laughs> so it's 
So, you know, some of those things, though, they can easily be ignored because it's like, okay, I've got an alert from Telegram that comes in with 50 other alerts from Facebook, email, Twitter, uh, wherever, you know, and so that sure. gets, just gets lost in the... There's something to be said for focus, and there's something to be said also for a technology that does one thing and one thing really freaking well, you know, and I, I definitely... Actually, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of tech in general... The ethereal idea of tech is actually going in that direction. Apps are getting more specific, uh, and so maybe we're kind of going back to that. But Steve, uh, beyond Telegram, do you have any thoughts on uh, what I labeled as, as older tech? That you know, like radios, do, you, do they have to use? Uh, I, I was a ham radio operator, and um, I know that in natural disasters, the cell phone networks go down. Uh, the landlines are certainly down, everything's down, there's no electricity, and one thing that uh, the ham radio community is really good at is they're, in a way, they're preppers, they have, a lot of them have generators, they have batteries, they have uh, portable antennas they can bring with them, and when disaster strikes, uh, ham radio operators are always there. And I look back to um, like the uprising in places like Egypt and stuff, where what did the government do during the uprisings? They jammed the cell phone networks, they turned off the cell phone networks, they turned off the internet connections, they cut the fiber lines. They did everything to shut people up. And um, even when they say now, like, well, they used Facebook and Twitter for Arab Spring and all that, uh, now Twitter's playing, everybody's playing ball with governments in deleting tweets, deleting posts, and all this stuff, so that's not as reliable as what you're discussing. Right, I, I mean, I am. I, I, when it comes to any software or anything like that, I'm always skeptical when you're you're relying on somebody else. If you're relying on someone else's server, you're relying on someone else's internet connection. Um, you, it, it's a potential problem. Central point of failure. Uh, right, and um, I, I do agree with, with so I. The radios, I mean, for one thing is if, if I'm somewhere and I'm trying to film something, when I'm using my camera phone to videotape it, I might not be able to see a text or answer a text that's coming in, but the radio, because it's a secondary device, sometimes having discrete, you know, separate discrete devices is better than, you know, these all-in-one things that's really convenient. And I agree with the Facebook and notify too many notifications because I don't have anything on my phone but text messages. If you want to get in contact with me, send me a text message or call me. Um, because uh, it's funny because I'll go, I'll be at an event and somebody asks me if I'm there. You know, like so and so at the event we're at, and I'll get home and I'll see it on Facebook and I'm like, I w they were there, I was there, but I don't have text message, I don't have Facebook messages sent to my phone. Sorry. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think those are great points to, to bring up, uh, to really solve. Um, so, you know, so I, I, you know, could the government, you know, jam uh, cell phone systems and stuff like that uh, if something goes wrong, and, uh, for, or wrong for them at least? Um, yes, they're, they're probably going to do it. So I think, you know, I mean, the, the, these $30 pal things, if, if you wanted to, you could transmit on any frequency you want uh, within a pretty wide range, and it would be very difficult for them to jam all those frequencies um, because you could change it to something well, very close to themselves. What, yeah, if you could, if yeah. you changed it a couple kilohertz away from the frequencies they're using, they're not going to be able to jam themselves, right? 
Yeah, no, uh, great points to bring up. Um, I do want to address quickly, I think a lot of people have recently heard uh, about how Android 5.0 and how Apple, how iOS devices, how they are blocking, you know, access to the, from the police, like they, the police can't, uh, you know, it's encrypted, and so the police, they can't access your device. Um, this has been kind of a popular topic going around, but it's been proven that it's just, it's not so. Uh, there may be certain aspects of the device that can't be cracked, uh, that the encryption cannot be cracked, but uh, there was a, a Jason, some guy with a, with a long, silly Jewish name. Uh, I, know, I, know how, yeah, no, I know how that is, believe me. <laughs> so, that's why I changed mine. Uh, but, uh, and he, uh, he came up with the idea that if you can copy the pairing key of the device that you, of the computer that you connect your mobile device to, that the pairing key will give you access to photos, to text, to all this, all these various things, and it's not that hard. And he's not the NSA. This is a guy doing it, you know, on his nine to five. Okay, as to where the NSA has limitless, you know, resources potentially. So do not count on that. That's why I think it's important to talk about using uh, some older technologies. Also, uh, just this week in Virginia, um, they, the Virginia Circuit Court said that a police officer, because iOS devices and some Android devices like Samsung have the fingerprint readers, Touch ID. And they did say that, yes, a, a, the law enforcement can compel you to give your fingerprint to access your device. So do keep that in mind, that that does go against what's the Fifth Amendment rights. That's not true. I don't know where, where you heard that from, but I've been reading about that for a while, too. And they it was just two days they ago. Can't compel, there was a federal court case. There was a Supreme Court case that okay. said that they cannot compel you to unlock your phone. Maybe they could compel you to give your fingerprint, yeah, and then right, they can somehow... Yeah, no, that's it. It's your fingerprints that they can But they would have to, your they would have to hack it. They would have to, like, photocopy your fingerprint and, like, make it into a thing and then press it to the phone themselves. They can't compel you to press your finger to the phone. Yes, they can. They can do whatever they want. They do it to, they take your your fingerprints when they arrest you anyway. Right. So, and and, and if people refuse to get fingerprinted, they're like, oh, they're refusing the process, blah, 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 blah. But it was a big deal. So, yeah, they already do compel you to get your fingerprints. Yeah. Now, it's a new case. The Virginia uh, Circuit Court said that, yeah. yes, the police officer can tell you to give your fingerprint on your device. And, and fingerprint readers have been fooled by gummy bears for yeah. the longest time. <laughs> or uh, women's nipples. It's true. <laughs> oh, no, really, really. You can take, put it up to your nipple and it'll mimic the, uh, the touch ID. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying how I know that. <laughs> I was going to say, though, that at least it's, it's a step in the right direction with this encryption, though, because while well, you can seize, if there's a raid, and in the raid they seize a computer and a phone, then they can unlock the phone. If that, that ID is required from the computer, the pairing ID, that negates all the roadside devices that they had before, which is where they could just take your phone and hook it up to a device and copy the entire device and have access to it, sure. which is what they had before. They could crack the phones almost instantly on the side of the road. Yeah. That's gone. Yeah. That's I mean, major. This is, right. No, and this is still great for, you know, against other bad actors. I mean, no doubt. This is a step in the right direction. You're certainly right on with that. Um, before I get to I, the next question I have is for Matt specifically. Uh, before I do that, we did have another panelist we're going to have here. Uh, and he was going to talk about game development, for, as in video games, uh, but he is not here. But I actually am developing completely on my own, one-man show, uh, a video game. And so I just want to touch on it very briefly. Uh, and my company is Zomia Offline Games. And you can go to ZomiaOfflineGames.com to, to find. There's, the website's 
nothing serious right now. But uh, in any case, uh, this is something actually yesterday that Chris Campbell mentioned, an area that activism is not addressing, which is fiction. It, you know, people getting into fiction. And video game development is just another way of doing great storytelling. And I think this is something that a lot of people, there's great software out there, RPG Maker, there's a whole slew out there, where anybody, you don't have to have any programming knowledge, okay? And you could program a game and just tell a great story, an, an interactive one at that, with, you know, voluntarist ideals or whichever. And I think that's an area not a lot of people are exploring. Um, I'm happy to be doing it, but I'd love to see a whole lot more. And it's a great way to, honestly, make some money while you're at it, okay? I mean, because uh, it, it's inexpensive for you to develop. It just takes your time and the cost of the software, which often is not expensive either. Uh, and, you know, I mean, then it's, it's pretty much pure profit. And if you sold it for Bitcoin, I mean, who's to know, you know how much you're making from doing it? So anyway, uh, but I want to get uh, to the next question. And this is for Max. Uh, you know, what do you feel is the importance of you know, science, biohacking, biotech, in regards to achieving more freedom in our lifetime? Because that's really the goal of activism, is to get more freedom in our lives, right? And so what, what is your, what do you think is the importance of those areas specifically uh, for this? Because you are really knee-deep in this. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I gave this some thought, and, uh, and so the, the area that I work in, in medical science and medical research, uh, is very tightly linked to freedom, or the lack thereof. And um, <clears throat> what I'm referring to is uh, things like the FDA and how um, drugs that are used for medical uh, interventions are regulated and how they're approved for use. And um, that's a very big issue right now. There were some studies that came out fairly recently um, that kind of concluded uh, something about this FDA and, and medical intervention approval process. And <clears throat> one of the things they found was that they compared uh, uh, drugs that the FDA allowed to go through to be accepted uh, that ended up hurting people, and they compared that to the number of people uh, or the, what happened when the FDA uh, withheld a drug for longer than might have otherwise been necessary if the FDA wasn't in existence. What they found was that the presence of the FDA actually killed far more people than did the FDA's withholding drugs that were unsafe. And it was a very interesting study, and maybe some of you were at um, Porkfest in uh, 2013. There was a woman by the name of Mary Ruart gave a very, very excellent talk on this very topic. Uh, and so in, in my area of research in biotech and aging science, uh, I see this all the time um, in, in the, the networks of scientists that I work with. Uh, we ponder this very frequently. Uh, we have to ask ourselves if we're trying to improve health and the human condition by, by uh, improving the way our biochemistry works so that we don't get these diseases or we slow down, reverse the progression of these diseases, uh, how are we going to get that by the FDA? And that's a serious problem because a lot of what we're trying to do in, in the networks I work in, we're trying to actually slow or prevent the disease from happening at all. So let's say some of you in the room right now might have some cholesterol in your arteries, uh, and I, I may want to give you a drug that keeps that cholesterol from building up. But that's not a disease. Cholesterol in your arteries is not a disease. Everyone has cholesterol in their arteries from like being a baby, and, and then and all the way through your life. So until you have a heart attack, I can't actually treat you. But I don't want to treat you after you have a heart attack. I want to prevent you from having the heart attack in the first place. And so uh, as far as regulation, that's a very gray area treating something that isn't a formal uh, diagnosis with some kind of 
uh, specific disease. So definitely biotech and medical uh, research and science is very intimately involved with what you put in your body, what you're allowed to put in your body. Yeah, I mean, definitely a, a saying I like to say often is that one of the best ways to do activism against the government is to be insanely healthy, like ridiculously healthy. Uh, I mean, just to picture how much, how important Obamacare is uh, to so many people. If you're just keeping yourself really, really healthy, that's not even something you have to worry about. Uh, so, yeah, I think those are, those are solid points. Did you have anything else on that? Or? No, that's a good point you have there about being healthy. Sure. Uh, so, uh, last question here, and then we'll open it up to, uh, to the audience. Um, do you have, any of you, we'll start with Johnson, uh, do you have any great resources, because I know you do, <laughs> or, or tools uh, for the audience to look into to, uh, to get started in the areas we've discussed? Before, before you comment on that, I just want to say that during the raffle that Daryl Perry was having, uh, he was giving away a USB drive that had tails on it. Uh, last year, I did recommend that. I won uh, you, you won it, fantastic. Um, and I think that that is something that, that certainly is a good uh, step, you know, into, into getting a you know, great tool, into getting some privacy and doing some activism. So I, uh, these cover the, definitely some of the areas that we've talked about, and I decided to kind of uh, try and be clever and check up the video. And uh, I printed a huge QR code. <laughs> oh, fantastic, yeah. Um, so we'll get that on the screen. I will hold this to the, uh, to the camera. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be able, able to be uh, filmed on the camera, but this works. One time, a reporter actually put up a, a, a Bitcoin paper wallet that had twenty dollars on it, and they showed it on the TV screen live while they were recording. And a bunch of very clever people just went and scanned it, and somebody got twenty bucks out of it. So this definitely works. <laughs> so essentially, what this is is it's uh, from a blog called Life Hacker, which is um, it's essentially a blog about. Um, Tips for improving your life, like uh, you know how to open a jar better, or you know uh, best way to plant your garden, but also technology uh, tips as well. And they have put together some of the best application packages. So this page is actually for you know, the best applications to download for Windows, Mac, Linux, um, for your phones, for Android, iPhone. Um, Windows Phone, uh, whatever uh, device you happen to use, BlackBerry. <laughs> yes, and BlackBerry. <laughs> and uh, essentially, these applications are some of the most useful pieces of software that you can find for free. And um, I highly recommend the Life Hacker application packs. I mean, I, I will pro probably download it 80 to 90 percent of most of the programs that come in these individual packages. So they're definitely worthwhile uh, if you want to replace. Uh, for example, Microsoft Office or certain other things, they just, they have all these useful tools. Um, a couple other things I want to mention is, again, from Lifehacker, they ha if you, you have to Google this one, though. Um, Lifehacker Night School, if you want to learn how to teach yourself to do something at all that's technology involved, if you want to learn how to write music with your computer or do music production or audio production or if you want to do video production or if you want to learn how to take apart and build a computer or if you want to learn how to do any number of topics, Lifehacker has these series that they put together called Lifehacker Night School and they are very good. Each individual course that they put together is completely free and extremely impressive. So I would definitely recommend checking those out if there is anything in particular that you're looking to learn. Again, um, and on that, Khan Academy on uh, YouTube, uh, K-A-H-N, Khan Academy is basically if you want to get a master's degree and you don't want to pay for college, um, <laughs> just go watch all the Khan Academy videos yeah. on the subject that you want to learn. 
And then the last one I have to mention is uh, codeacademy.com. So if you want to learn a program, um, that would be a really good, again, free resource, place to go that you can learn to program. Awesome. Um, if you want to start lining up, if you have questions, Code just Academy, like a phone over here. Wait, sorry, I'm getting corrected here. What, That's right. I said it's Code Academy. There's no A in the middle. Really? Yeah. I just went there like oh. right before today. It was, <laughs> I thought it was Code. I believe it's Code Academy. All right. Everybody bought a new domain. Yeah, CodeAcademy.com. All right, uh, Steve. Do you have any great tools or resources? Uh, what What I was going to suggest, and unfortunately, I forgot the uh, the exact URL or. Uh, but this, the state of New Hampshire actually does have quite a bit of information uh, like in business development and stuff, and they have a, a website where you can go and they have a comparison to absolutely every state in the country uh, where it'll compare, here's the sales tax, you know, comparing California or wherever to New Hampshire, uh, and it even goes down to like how much unemployment taxes are gonna uh, or unemployment insurance is gonna cost you and stuff like that. They even have like what's a gallon of milk cost in in New Hampshire compared to <laughs> Vermont or compared to California. Uh, it, it, it's like twenty sheets of paper, like ten point font, just a line by line comparison of numbers. It's uh, and bunch of other stuff, but uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, and I, I, I do think if you're thinking about um, starting a startup, uh, you know, and you're a liberty-minded person, I think you should attend Porkfest. You might want to move your business to Porkfest, or, or to, to New Hampshire. Yeah, one visit to Porkfest and everything changes. Yeah, for everybody. <laughs> if you haven't visited Porkfest, you, yeah. you, you, you haven't been there. Yeah, been there. yeah great points. Um, Max. Yeah, I have, um, gosh, there's a lot of resources I could point somebody to. I'm, I'm going to narrow them down just a little bit. Uh, the company I've worked for for about four years now uh, called is called SENS Research Foundation. So they fund um, quite a bit of research in this in this area of aging research. Uh, you can find them at SENS, S-E-N-S, dot org. Uh, another one, uh, I like Brian's advice of staying as healthy as possible. There's, uh, biology is awful complicated. Um, one company that's really good and, and very honest with their assessment of the science literature and giving suggestions on how to stay alive and not you know, uh, get uh, chronic diseases of aging is called Life Extension Foundation. That's uh, lef.org. Um, from my uh, studying the science literature, trying to figure out how to stay uh, healthy myself, uh, there are a handful of very valuable health hacks or biohacks you can do to kind of keep track of a couple blood parameters uh, to make sure your biochemistry is working well. Uh, LEF does those tests. They, they sell supplements that are high purity and high quality. Um, and then if you want to hear more from me, um, I have a website. It's called Long Life Labs. So it's longlifelabs.org. Uh, and there I kind of evaluate the science literature and kind of report to, uh, on the best ways to keep yourself alive and healthy. Uh, I give you updates on scientific uh, uh, medical research uh, in my areas. Uh, and it's targeted to people who are not scientists. It's kind of to interpret it so you can use it for yourself to keep yourself alive and healthy. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, definitely, Max, uh, sorry, all three of these gentlemen are some of the smartest men I know, so you definitely want to keep tabs on what they're up to uh, and what they provide for you, no doubt about it. Um, so let's go ahead and let's get to the questions. Uh, we'll start off. Chris? Yep. Go for it. How you doing, guys? I was going to ask... Um, 
what are your favorite things about the Android operating system, Johnson? But, <laughs> but I'm going to skip that one. Um, Johnson notoriously is having issues with the Android. <laughs> uh, a couple things come up. Um, we talk about uh, attracting tech jobs and tech companies to New Hampshire. And to me, it's similar to what the FSP does. Uh, we're trying to attract people that are liberty-minded here. What can we do, or do you have any ideas about what we could do to attract those companies here outside of the usual state methods, which means I'm, I'm gonna let you go for 10 years without paying any taxes, and we're gonna do this and that. Are there some ideas around creating sort of a free business project thing? Given the fact that so many of us are uh, in IT or in tech, and what can we do to get outreach out there outside of the government channels? Yeah, I have something I can say to that. It's a great question. Um, I've studied entrepreneurship quite a bit, and particularly biotech entrepreneurship, and I like what Steve alluded to earlier about how uh, I haven't become aware of very much venture capital that's here in New Hampshire and looking for um, ventures to invest in. Maybe there is some, and certainly there's a uh, considerable amount in Boston, but in, in my experience, it was kind of, it was almost a chicken and the egg problem. You want to have in order to attract um, more uh, people who are technologists who can create jobs and create valuable uh, enterprises, you also have to be able to give them the resources to do the research and development, to build the product, to, uh, uh, to market the product. And, but you also have to have the people to do it. So you have the technologists and then you have the people who are funding the technologists and they have to meet in the same place. Um, so I don't know, uh, I'm not aware of, of how dense the technologists are here in New Hampshire, but you might make it more dense and more of them if there is a, a very active venture community or venture capital community here in New Hampshire. And, and so I don't know if anyone can participate in that or yourself or there's crowdfunding, right? There are projects that I've known that have become very popular and, and, and lucrative that have done things like Kickstarter uh, to start a project like that. Uh, so something to keep in mind that everyone here can maybe participate in uh, is this kind of uh, small venture capital funding for, for crowdsourcing. Yeah, I think like a New Hampshire Kickstarter would actually, like a, a particularly New Hampshire-based Kickstarter is a fantastic idea. Yeah. Um, Steve or, or Johnson, do you have any thoughts? Uh, I think that New Hampshire is, because it's a desirable place to live, uh, I think it's going to be a desi desirable place to start a business. And what I'm hoping to see is that people will want to move their businesses more and more, or at, at least, if not move their businesses, uh, expand their businesses and open a branch office of whatever business it is. And you know, it's, if, if you're a small business owner and the Free State Project uh, was planning on moving, you know, once the trigger the move happens, um, and, but you have a small business that that's, uh, you don't want to move. Uh, that's very understandable. You have your you have your your roots set in the soil um, where you are. Uh, but it's kind of funny because it's not just the tech industry. Uh, you know, with it, if you if you go to an event like Forkfest, you'll you'll meet so many people. You'll you know if you're if you if you run a machine shop and you need people who have machining background or welders or uh, carpenters or whatever it is, um, you know if you're a restaurant owner in, a, in another state and you want to move to New Hampshire, 
there's people here who they know the restaurant business. They might not own a restaurant themselves, but they can help you find good deals on restaurant equipment. So you could, you know, start one here. Uh, there, there's a lot of resources if you're liberty-minded. Um, yeah, real strength the community and like the, the option of satellite. Is and great, yeah. and people people want to see your your business succeed uh, here in New Hampshire. So. Reach out if you you know heck talk to your employees. Maybe they're sick of being in Connecticut or Massachusetts <laughs> yeah. or New York or New right. Jersey. Maybe they want to get out. You know, they might all be like, oh, let's all move right now. Yeah, or like Max was saying, how Enfield was just like open arms. Come on, please, yes, we yeah. want you. I definitely think uh, it's, it's an issue that needs to be addressed from multiple fronts. I think that uh, activists for the Free State Project are already addressing uh, one aspect of this by helping to uh, approach and roll back anti-business anti regulation. Um, so I think that that's the, my microphone is coming out. Um, I think that that's uh, a huge, uh, that to draw businesses in general, but I think that what also needs to happen is that just entrepreneur, entrepreneurs in New Hampshire need to- uh, yeah. Entrepreneurs in New Hampshire need to um, basically build tech businesses here, uh, and yeah. I think that's going to attract more tech businesses is if, if uh, businesses get developed here. And I think uh, along that line, along that point, uh, whatever can be done, and again, I think this is sort of a government uh, issue, uh, is that the, the cost of education, uh, obviously there's an education bubble right now, I think that bubble needs to pop and the cost of education needs to come down. And, and uh, these, you know, ridiculous uh, state school educations that are just, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, or well, not hundreds of thousands, but at least tens of thousands, if not approaching a hundred thousand or more dollars um, for an education. Um, yeah, New Hampshire really, stop. Yeah, and New Hampshire's really ahead of the curve legislatively about right. uh, schooling, as to where there's like not really any restrictions, as I understand it. Uh, so, you know, if you don't want your kid to go to school, they don't have to. Right, sure, but that's not what I mean. No, what okay. I mean is getting the cost of education and get, yeah. getting, well, people, getting people in quality tech education and not, sure. having to be, you know, not having all the quality tech educators drained off to uh, be indoctrinated in these, you know, uh, state-funded schools because they, uh, you know, are going there because that's where the salaries are. Sure. And so they're, you know, part of this uh, particular culture, right. you know, at these schools and, and that, you know, it's like where, where else? I mean, if you wanted to start a competing tech education school, are you going to be able to make money at it, or are you going to have to go and work for the government uh, institution, you know, the state school, in order to teach and, and succeed at that? And the the answer is probably now that the population in New Hampshire isn't big enough to support real, uh, huge, a real large network of. Uh, private tech education companies as you sure. would see in some of these other states like California and Florida and Texas and you know more populous areas and if we could get that going a little bit more strongly and have uh, you know uh, community tech education that is affordable that isn't so independent I mean I mentioned uh, code I said code academy but it is code right. academy although both domains work but uh, code academy and Khan academy um, those are great if you're teaching yourself, but again, when you're talking about proximity, sometimes that's very important to be working with other people sure. when you want to get that kind of that level of education. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy has a question. <laughs> great panel so far, guys. really enjoyed it. Usually we come to you for answers, so this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is a question about entrepreneurship, 
And it's often it's the technological uh, solutions or the tech startups that end up really changing the world for more freedom. And it, it doesn't matter if you're in New Hampshire, you can enjoy Bitcoin anywhere in the world. Um, you can use Uber, even though they've kind of turned evil, but like they really were solving a state-created problem uh, with their business model. Uh, so if someone wants to start a, a startup business or a tech startup in particular, do you think that those really world-changing ideas for freedom come out of like a purposeful desire to mix activism with their business? Or do you think that it's more effective to just focus on starting a business that's going to be profitable and then solve a problem and hopefully it'll change the world for more freedom and not mix the two? Anyone? That's a good and a very difficult question. <laughs> yeah, good question. So the thoughts that your question inspired from me is that uh, I think I've seen from studying the, the, the entrepreneurship literature and, and anecdotes is that both kinds of strategies end up working. Some people start out with a very purpose-driven control, wanting to change the system, and that's what, and then they end up being successful. But other people kind of accidentally change the system and end up being really successful. Um, this is kind of, not a lot of research supports what I'm about to say, but my kind of take or anecdote on this topic might be that um, I find that the most valuable things to be done also changes the system. Like I talked about medical uh, interventions with aging diseases um, and then something like uh, cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin and things like that is really a kind of system changer. I, I tend to think that if you uh, that these are gonna be more and more prevalent, uh, or the strategy that's going to be more prevalent is the one where you start out with a purpose. And I wonder if this might be because uh, a lot of the, what I think of as easier problems have already been solved, and so there's a lot of hard, hard, you know, difficult stuff left over, like the way we organize these huge uh, societies of billions of people, or uh, how we trade and what kind of currency we use, or, or what I'm talking about, medical research for age-related diseases. Um, and so I think because these uh, answers to these problems are so valuable, they're so difficult, it's less likely that you'll kind of stumble upon them like, whoops, I just cured cancer. Gosh, I just meant to make a great yogurt. Like, how does that happen? <laughs> you know, like you kind of have to set out to do it because it's really hard. But that, that's my own anecdotal take. Anyway, Steve, did you have something? Yeah, I, I do find it strange that there that New Hampshire isn't the like Bitcoin capital of the world for uh, Bitcoin startups, because uh, they did, for example, when um, Overstock.com uh, first accepted Bitcoin, per capita, New Hampshire had way more Bitcoin orders than uh, any other state. Um, and uh, I, I, I do think that, in a, in a way, like, I think of like the open source movement um, is it has changed uh, the way we do computer technology if you, and if you look at a company like Red Hat this it's open source software they're, they're making their money on they're making most of their money on support and custom programming and stuff like that um, but Red Hat does make how does make Red Hat Enterprise Linux and charge a subscription fee for it, but um, they're not hurting even though they're giving away their software. And if you know, compared to Microsoft, which charges an arm and a leg for um, their operating systems and software, uh, and if you look at since Red Hat's IPO last I checked, 
it, it significantly outperformed out Microsoft, at, at, least, yeah, at, least, at, their, yeah. at least at their stock price. Um, and, uh, you know, CentOS uh, is basically recompiled, um, is basically, CentOS is basically Red Hat Enterprise Linux, uh, but they recompile it and give it out for free. Hasn't hurt, hasn't hurt Red Hat any, it doesn't seem. Um, right. So, it's not really livery related, but I, you know, I do kind of think that like intellectual property is kind of a creation of the government. Yeah, it's uh, not required to make a ton of money. And, and if you're an inventor, if you are an inventor, and you don't have an army of lawyers to back you up, you're, you might as well not even file a patent. Sure. In many cases. Sure. Johnson, did you have any thoughts? So I find it an interesting question because I thought my first reaction, my instinct was to say, well, I think that you want to start a business first because then you're going to be able to have your financial funding and whatnot to be able to uh, actually move forward with your goal. But then um, I neglected to mention this in my sort of about me, but I actually have two projects that I'm working on currently that um, normally when I do any of these speeches and when I'm on Free Talk Live, I never have anything to promote, self-promote <laughs> for the longest, for years and years and years. Finally, I do, um, I've, and I, I've started, I'm starting and I'm working on, you can find on Facebook, I'm Infinite Twilight Designs, so if you're looking for graphic design work, um, I do that there, and that's my sort of personal business, and I have no website for that yet. <laughs> I haven't even gotten there, I started to work on it, and that, that's the business aspect. You would think that that would be the first place I'd go, but I've also started Shire, Share, and Keen, and so now, in within like, a day or two days, I had Shire, Shire, and Keen up and accepting ready to accept donations. Um, so that's the one that was the activism one, and because I had the defined definition and purpose, and it wasn't so nebulous and what do I want to do with it, I got it up and did it right away. So um, I think it just comes down to where the passion is, and uh, the. I think money tends to follow passion. So um, you want to have you want to have money to be able to move forward with your passion, but I think the passion is what creates the money. So if you follow that passion long enough, eventually, you know, yeah. you want to hope that the money will come unless your idea is really, really terrible. And even still, some people, you probably still shouldn't give up, even if your idea is terrible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just, I do want to say quickly that certainly having a community like you do in New Hampshire uh, allows you to follow your passions without judgment. And that is so key. Never, I mean, most people would, like myself, I'm you know, developing a game, people would say that's insane, you're not going to do anything with that, you're just one person. No, nope. everybody I've talked to in the Liberty community has been incredibly supportive uh, of my venture. So, uh, you know, that, that's a wonderful thing to have uh, built in. And another thing, quick thing for startups, please do always consider, because I don't hear this enough, um, when you're trying, the, the, the key to a startup is, you know, what problem am I solving? Please consider what problems you're going to create as well, okay. <laughs> that, that gets missed in the equation. It's like, how many more problems are you gonna create with what you're trying to solve? Not to say that you will, but consider that you might. So uh, I think that'll wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much. This has been the Keenvention 2014 Tech Panel. Yay, clap, 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 yay, woo, fantastic. <laughs>
anyway, uh, boy, can it, does it get any better than that? I thought that was, there's just so much information getting laid out, uh, in that as far as, you know, but especially like with startups. In fact, that wasn't even totally the plan was for it to be talking about startups in general, but that's kind of how it ended up happening. And the beauty of it that I thought was that this was all about doing startups without permission and not even without permission. I, you know, I repeated it a few times cause I love how Max Peter was saying, look, the city's here or the town's here. Yeah. Come on in. You know, who cares about zoning? Come on in and bring your business. <laughs> I mean, you know, where do you get that? You know, no, with no questions asked almost, uh, especially when it's like a biotech company. I mean, you'd think most towns would be scared to death of that existing around. It's like, well, you know, uh, we need a permit for this, blah, 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 blah. And that, that just, you know, as far as I understood it, that more or less wasn't so. Uh, you know, maybe down the line, maybe it would end up being that, who knows. But regardless, very attractive case, in my opinion. Uh, it's a very attractive, this, this panel proved it's a very attractive case for businesses and for people, individuals to do startup ventures and to get involved with science and technology in New Hampshire itself. Uh, and of course, also just by and large, you know, the importance of, of science and technology, uh, you know, Johnson made some great points early on about, you know, activists knowing the scientific method and actually applying it. You know, because you don't want to, you know, believe things, uh, you know, you don't want to hear something and, and just totally believe it just because of the source that it came from. You want to do, you know, a little bit of your own individual research. Uh, and I thought that was a great point to open up with, uh, because that gets, I think that gets people excited because when you hear about how empowering science is, you know, and of course technology, you know, by default with that, uh, it gets you excited about it and wants you. And, and I think it, it makes people want to get involved. So I, I thought that was an awesome opener, uh, you know, and the whole panel was just really, really great. Anyway, uh, total thanks to Ian Freeman for providing really both of these panels uh, to happen. And, you know, Keenvention was a great time. Again, I will be doing an episode, Stephanie and I will be doing an episode where we discuss that overall. And of course, total thanks to Stephanie for recording both of these. These were personal recordings that were made. There's going to be professional video released eventually uh, that Ian will be putting up uh, at keenvention.info, you know, via the YouTube channel or whatever, uh, that will be up eventually. So video will be there and I'll certainly announce when that happens or, you know, when that's released, but you know, just so you can have it right now, these are personal recordings, uh, that, that you are getting, you know, and more or less uncut. Hope you enjoyed all this. And of course, if you did, uh, please don't hesitate. Look in the show notes. You can donate to the show. I've gotten some very gracious donations recently. Thank you so much for those. Believe me, they help so much. They really do help me out. Uh, also, of course, the PayPal link, if you want to donate via PayPal, is on the left-hand side of SovereignTech.com. Uh, you'll see a bunch of affiliate links there that you can use as well. Uh, but again, thank you so much for all that you've donated already. It's definitely allowed me uh, to make these ventures and adventures <laughs> uh, a lot more possible and uh, you know a lot more comfortable. Uh, no doubt about it. Please, please understand. It does help me immensely. So if you want to, you can donate to the show. There's, there's a Bitcoin address, you know, all kinds of cryptocurrencies you can donate with, or of course, uh, PayPal. And then there are also, uh, you know, the affiliate links. Anyway, thank you again. Uh, hope you enjoyed this. Please feel free to bit message me or, you know, actually I'll tell you right now, there's a new email address 
and you can find that new email address on the on the same on the left hand side of sovereigntech.com. It's Brian at ZomiaOfflineGames.com. Uh, you are hearing that here first. SovereignTech at RiseUp.net is still available, but that is the new email address. There is a PGP key for that as well, uh, which you can you know you can look it up at pgp.mit.edu and there it is and i'll also put it in the show notes uh carpe lucem everybody and yeah don't worry uh special and then you boy you got episode 99 coming up this week get ready for that uh but another special yet this week as well i'll see you on the other side You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com, that's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com, and connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the evolution.